Hi, Amos Vang here with yet another episode of This is the Legend of. Before I start with this introduction, I want to give you a timestamp as this introduction will be a bit of a longer one. However, I strongly recommend that you stay behind for this entire introduction as I want you to get a good sense of just how legendary this story is. So let's begin. The Olympics and Paralympics. We all know what this is. The pinnacle of athletic performance. We all know about Usain Bolt's world record-breaking 100-meter run. And we all know about Michael Phelps' eight gold medals at a single Olympics. But what if I told you that there is a violin equivalent to the Olympics and Paralympics? Well, this is the legend of a man who got there in just 13 years of his life. This is the legend of a man named Curson. Born in Ottawa, Canada, Curson was already immersed into the world of classical music at the beginning of his life. He would begin playing the violin at age four and would learn with outstanding teachers throughout his life. With each lesson, repertoire, and performance, Curson excelled and learned quickly. Curson enjoyed each and every moment that passed in his lessons. Curson was happy. And then one day, something excellent would happen. Something that would change his life forever. At eight years of age, Curson would enter and win his first ever Canadian music competition, the CMC. Not only that, but Curson would win the next four consecutive CMCs, respectively at nine, 10, 11, and 12 years of age. In all five of his CMCs, Curson not only won the CMCs, but he had the highest performance score out of all age categories and all instruments. To put this into perspective, that's like winning five consecutive Stanley Cups in the NHL and being named the MVP for all five Stanley Cups. It doesn't end there. Curson would then compete at the 2010 International Yehudi Menuhin Violin Competition. This is the Olympics and Paralympics of violin competition. Despite the overwhelming odds, Curson would become the first and only Canadian to win the first prize at the Menuhin competition at 13 years of age. Curson's life changed overnight. So far, Curson has performed for two Canadian Governor-Generals, two Canadian Prime Ministers, the King of Norway, and one Italian President, all between the ages when he was at age 8 to age 22. Also, at 21 years of age, Curson made his debut at the prestigious Carnegie Hall in New York. Jonathan Crowe, concertmaster of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra and a former teacher for Curson, has described Curson in the Toronto Star newspaper as, quote, not just one of Canada's greatest violinists, but one of the greatest violinists, period, end quote. Let that sink in for a moment. This is legendary, and this is the legend of Curson Young. Thank you, son. Welcome to the show. 
Thanks, Amos. Uh, and thanks for the introduction. But, uh, and it's been a while since we've seen each other. So it's great to talk. Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, thanks for uh, being willing to come on. And, you know, let's just start off from the very, very beginning. So going all those years back, what inspired you to pursue violin? And I guess a bit of a hardball question, why violin and not piano? That's a good one. Um, I think it started with my parents um, because my parents are musical, inherently musical. I mean, my, my mom, like your mom, you know, is a pianist, studied music from young. Um, so that was obviously a big, a big influence in uh, even just sort of if it was, you know, plopping me down at the piano at age two or whatever, just to, to you know, to, to dang on some, key, on some keys, just to, just to get a, you know, feel of, of, uh, of music already, just to, to be interacting with it already. So that was a big thing. But also my dad, my dad is not a professional musician, um, but he is a music lover, self-taught himself classical guitar when he was back in Malaysia and uh, sort of fell in love with classical music and, and um, had a big CD collection, as a, what I remember uh, when I was young, uh, from anything from guitar music, but a lot of violin music as well, a lot of orchestral music. So that was equally important, I guess, as, a, as, a, um, as an exposure, I guess, the first exposures to, to classical music. Um, and then from then on, I think it was pretty natural that um, that I would, you know, even regardless of, of expectation, like to learn an instrument, you know, I think it was pretty natural by then. I think for me, funnily enough, I think I wanted to be a double bassist when I was young. Uh, I wanted to, I think I just, something about the size and the, the impression that a double bassist has, you know, um, made, made an impact on me for sure. But I think, of course, my parents would have, would have had to buy a new van or something. So I guess for them, they gave me a mini version. Um, so which, which never grew, it stayed the same size or at least grew only a little bit. And so, um, I guess that was the, the little story behind, behind violin. I think for me, I think the, the, because I did learn a little bit of piano at the beginning as well, even before, before violin, I think it was just, I think it was a physicality of the violin that got to me, um, as, as we are, you know, very physical when we're young, we like to move around, we like to be active. And there's something about just the nature of playing the violin, which is quite physical. You know, it's almost as if like, it's, it's more hands-on in a way, uh, you can imagine, like, and, and also requires perhaps less of a, of a sort of internal discipline to sit at a bench and, uh, and to, you know, to learn, to learn the ways around a piano. I think that's more sort of slightly more sedentary at that point. Um, but I think there was something about violin that, that appealed to me physically. Like it just, it, it got me to, to, to take out my excitement and my, my, my childhood, childlike vigor, I guess, on something pretty effectively. So I guess that, that stuck. And then it, uh, it grew from there. I think I just had, uh, I guess soon found out I had some sort of natural affinity with, with that, with that instrument. Um, and with the physicality of that instrument. So, yeah, I kind of took off that way. Yeah, and that natural affinity, as we would see, would show in later years. And still at age four, when you started violin, you already had a really, really good violin teacher, Calvin Sieb, who 
is or was an internationally acclaimed violinist and the former concertmaster of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. What was it like to study with him? Yeah, no, I mean, that was, he was, he was my first teacher and I don't actually remember much from those days because obviously I was four or four or five, um, but there are pictures. I mean, I do remember seeing pictures of like, you know, taking some of those, like, you know, like those toy set chairs, you know, and then going there and just um, being shown how to hold a violin. And by that time though, Calvin Zeeb was quite old. Like, I think he was already showing signs of dementia. And so in a way, I think that's the reason why I didn't really wasn't able to continue with him for long because I mean after a while the lessons all became a repeat you know because of because of the fact that he was uh, that he was showing signs of dementia um, but I think the impression was I think uh, equally on to me but also on to my parents I guess on what kind of potential path lay ahead um, for me because I think he 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 was very, not only very generous with his, with his time, of course, being already, let's say, at a, at a more retired age, but I guess I think he did see something in me to the point where I guess also that gave my parents the memo that perhaps something could be there to cultivate and to, to nurture. Um, so, um, but I, I do remember that was sort of the, the first benevolent, very, very benevolent and very sort of like the, the, the warm beginnings of something that, yeah, that would soon uh, that would soon take shape and I guess uh, um, permeate in my life, you know. So yeah, yeah, that's great. And that foundation would be such an important thing to develop, you know. And, and you know, it's unfortunate to hear that he was suffering the early stages, at least, of his dementia. And it's, and the reason why I said was an internationally acclaimed violinist is well, he has passed on. So, but hearing that you had such a warm foundation with him really was important because as you know, and as everybody in the audience knows, children, especially between the ages well, from birth all the way up to really about their seven or eight or nine years of age are really impressionable. So having that good foundation really changed the course of your life. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, it is, it is, it is very good actually that you mentioned that because I think, uh, you know, with everything, with the importance that childhood has on, let's say, our outlook and, and also, you know, what we, how we are in a way later in life and how, what we develop, how we develop as humans, you know, uh, throughout time, I think like just the early influences, not just Calvin, but also like my parents as well, like in terms of just giving, giving me the right in a way, the right atmosphere to cultivate these kind of interests or to, in a way, like to explore them without much, without much pressure at first, you know, I think that that was a very big thing as well. Like the kind of, to be able to feel free and to be encouraged rather than to be pushed or to be, let's say made to do something, but to just allow, let's say these interests to, to naturally unfold. Um, I think that's a very important thing. And I think, um, you know, that I can see now as well, like just uh, the, the attitude towards music, the continuing, you know, to uh, let's say to, to continue to develop myself and to, to improve, not for the sake of, let's say, like feeling as if I have an ob obligation to do that, but just as a, as a way of, of, uh, it's like a sort of a, the greatest sense of, of, of satisfaction deep within 
and to know that also you're doing well by yourself. You know, this whole thing, I think that's that starts from childhood. You know, it's the relationship that you then have with your instrument or then with music, then um, it really does determine also your how healthy that, that relationship is with, uh, with music. And for me, I think I was very lucky at the very beginning to, uh, to, to have that. Yeah, your relationship with your instrument is important and your relationship with your parents were also important as well. Your mom, as you mentioned, was a and still is a pianist and a piano teacher. She's also, for the audience, she's also my mom's younger sister as well. And your father being not in, not formally trained in music, but being an MIT trained expert in quantum electronics, he gave the more physical side and also the, a sense of structure to your life early on and even to this day as well as I would assume. What were some of the most important lessons that you have learned from your parents? Well, I would say um, from my mom, perseverance. I think there's something about the quality about sort of not giving up, always going by your conviction and standing by it. Um, and, and perseverance. I mean, that's, that's a big thing that I, that I get from my mom and I always try to, to live up to, you know? And so my mom, I think is, that's, that's one quality that I do, that I do look up to very much, uh, from my mom, my dad, in a way, just to think about things or to think things through global in a global sense. Um, because, and, and also to, to be, uh, to be humble as well to be to be simple like a simple in demeanor and to to just um to know to know that there's so much more to give and to learn and to you know like these things that it's a never-ending journey i find that that's that's very important in a sense it's, it's funny because um, that that uh, you mentioned my like the fact that my dad studied at mit and stuff um for sure that's his field, but at the same time, I mean, he was a music lover and at, at a certain point he did also, you know, start to explain to me when I was maybe around 12 or 13, like these, the concepts behind, let's say, how a string instrument works, string resonance and all that stuff, um, which then sort of had a huge impact, I guess, on on the way also I, I saw the instrument and how I did the philosophy behind producing sound on the instrument, but I just find that there's just sort of this, um, this willingness also to make connections between fields, again, to see things in a global sense, not to, let's say, um, be, be totally sort of rung up on, hung up on, on what is directly in front of you, but then also, let's say, try and, try and uh, envision what is around that or from different angles or from, um, or to, to always envision also like how things can be better, um, to have a, not only sort of to know that, but to also like to, to feel that in a concrete sense, to have a vision of how, let's say what, what better might look like or what better might be. I think that's something else I got from, it seems like it's handed down from my grandfather on my dad's side, which is nice. You know, this sort of quality of, of, of never being satisfied, never being complacent. I think that's something that I, uh, one huge thing I find um, that I try and uh, hold on to in, in life, just not being complacent, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And those connections that you mentioned between different fields, that's a really important thing. And I think it's something that's a bit of a trend nowadays as well, 
that's where a lot of creativity comes from. Seeing those connections between two seemingly unrelated areas and connecting them in a way that has not been connected before, I think, at least in my own personal conversations with other people in my daily life and even on previous work that I've done, uh, recorded work on either podcast or broadcast or whatever, I found that that sparks also a different way of how to approach not just music, but also other areas of work, even in law, myself being involved in that profession. It's fascinating to have that kind of connection between the artistic, the non-artistic, the concrete, and the abstract. That's, well, really important and also changes the way how you think and challenges what you previously believed in and know, and it improves your knowledge at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you kind of learn to, through that process, you can you learn to, to question everything or to, to unlearn, constantly unlearn or to, to rid yourself of previous baggage and then to gain new insight and, and to know and to gain new perspective. I think that's, that's really uh, what makes the sort of the path of continual development interesting. Um, so, yeah. And that sort of continual development and the unlearning that you had to do not all the time, of course, but sometimes whenever you find an even better idea to what you've previously known slash believed in, it's quite challenging. And I can imagine, especially back then when you started out as a violinist, it was quite challenging back then for that. What were some of the early challenges that you faced in learning violin, both in unlearning bad habits or or not the best ideas you know, and, and learning new ideas, what were some of the early challenges that you faced overall in learning violin and how did you overcome them? Yeah, that's a good one. I think, um, I think the, I would say that the, the, the greatest challenges came after I won the menuing competition, actually, because in a sense, well, first of all, in, in, a, in a more general sense, it's sort of like how to find out um, even just forgetting specifically like the violin as a physical instrument, but just like how does violin fit then into your your raison d'être, like your 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 why, you know, um, your your reason for for doing this or your reason for going through life? Um, because I think before that, I was always let's say someone who was very like naturally, I was a naturally resourceful kid creative kid and, you know, sort of was someone who was able to learn quickly and to, to absorb things quite quickly and to, you know, so that, that, that reflected, I guess, in my, my journey when I was young in a sense that like, okay, like, you know, you get better and better at violin and you become good at something. And, and sure, I mean, it's, it's great. It's great to, to be good at something, um, you know, and to, and to do it, let's say at a standard that was, um, that, that was, that was hard to reach. Um, but at the same time, as you need, it needs to come from a different, like a deeper place. Uh, after a certain point, it's sort of like that deeper, that deeper reason behind it. You know, I guess it would be the key to, let's say, longevity. Otherwise, I find that you know, it's sort of like, okay, you're good at something, you're good at playing an instrument, so what? You know, kind of thing, right? Um, so in a way, that whole, and I think that's the the main challenge for, let's say, people who are precocious, let's say people who, who do develop um, a talent, like some sort of skill or some sort of, you know, thing very early on um, and, and, and are also, let's say, given attention, you know, given the spotlight because of it. I think there's a challenge within those, you know, prodigy types, if you want to call it that. I mean, 
and not, not necessarily let's say how to how to sustain a career but even before that it's like how to how to even become an individual a mature individual who knows himself and has a vision and has a has a deeper reason for being um and a more individual artist let's say in the first place how to make the transition between that um let's say child um entertainer child prodigy into let's say an artist who has something to say something meaningful to say um so that was i think the, the biggest challenge for me um throughout those years um following the competition because it's like suddenly you have expectation from people you have the spotlight on you everything in a way is being watched you know and and yet at the same time it's not like you haven't even hit your your awkward stages yet you haven't even hit puberty you know and then you go through those stages and it's like it becomes i mean i remember it was a very up and down process like lots and lots of highs and lows and lots of let's say um uh defeats in a way like uh lots of lots of you know being brought back crashing down to earth and sort of confronted with actually not what you, not only what you are but also like why and like you know what are you about you know but i think it was through those difficult experiences that not only did was i able to let's say uh you know see this kind of personal adversity as a good thing that that was what propelled me later in life but also it provides fuel for the music because in a way like you know our, all our experiences make their way back into the music in the sense that that those experiences become our palette you know um then we actually have something to say and then at some point music making becomes personal it doesn't become let's say something to entertain or or not just that you know because it can be that but at the same time that's definitely not all of it um it doesn't it's not something also that gets a physical skill that you master you know sure technique is one thing you know playing something impressive or being a virtuoso is one thing but at the same time I, I would like to think that you know all of that skill and all that technique is at the service of something that's much greater that's much more all encompassing that's that's deeper and so i think that whole um in a way that that transition so between child prodigy if you want to call it that and someone who actually has a real conviction behind them and has something to say and uses the violin in a way that that allows you to transcend it so that you can actually focus then on creating meaningful and you know potentially life-changing musical experiences or just emotional experiences for people then that's that was first of all to even be aware of that the fact that that transition needs to be made you know um and then going through those roller coaster years i think that was a big um uh, a big thing and looking back sort of having survived let's say or being able to reinvent yourself time and time again i think that's something that for me i can look back on and be be proud of but it also gives its perspective on let's say the the continue like the the perpetual evolution that this path takes you know whether it's like a physical thing whether your technique is constantly changing but also your mindset about music itself or whether your mindset about a particular piece you know all this stuff it just kind of gives awareness to how in a sense if you want to be consistent you have to be constantly evolving you know it's it's a, it's a weird it's a weird thing but i think uh so that yeah 
Yeah, that that's a great way to describe not only music, but also life as well. I'm really glad you brought up the point about child prodigies, because even when we were kids, too often do I see the word prodigy being thrown around. So myself being from a piano background, whenever I see prodigies, I often, or so-called prodigies, I hear I see or see kids playing Flight of the Bumblebee. You know, that's like the most cliche piece there. Now, don't get me wrong, the technique is difficult, but it's more, like you said, it's more than just technique, right? And even then, there are far more technically challenging, even if we were just to look at the technical or the technique part of the piece or of the repertoire or of piano playing in general, the Flight of the Bumblebee is just the tip of the iceberg compared to many, 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 many other pieces like Liszt's Transcendental Etudes or Chopin's uh, very own repertoire as well, or Rachmaninoff, Rachmaninoff sonatas, also very technically challenging as well. Yet, and again, this is not meant to disparage the kids because the, the kids do have potential, but it's just that, number one, to give them the attention of a prodigy isn't doing them anything, frankly, and it cheapens the meaning of a prodigy. And number two, as you mentioned, it's really difficult, especially with that amount of, of attention, it's really difficult for them to grow into themselves, so to speak. To use a non-music example, we hear time and time again about Hollywood child actors who just go off the rails when they get into their teens or they get into their adulthood. Some of them end up abusing drugs. Some of them end up getting, getting imprisoned for you know, irrational behavior. And it's sad because... Part of it is their own choices, but a part of that also comes from before, way before they even became adults. The attention that they got was so much, they didn't know how to, what to deal with it. So having that support structure, I think, was very important. And in your case, you know, your parents being that, that structure, that support structure was, I think, really, really important because it kind of still you know, kept you within the context and kept you grounded and also you know, grounded in the sense that you were still connected to reality. And... You know, you yourself mentioning that you can't be complacent. That's what allows you, as you mentioned, to build yourself into a seasoned professional virtuoso violinist. Otherwise, you know, it's not going to end well. And 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 thank goodness, you know, you went and you achieved what you've done, and you still continue to achieve. So that's it's it's really refreshing to see that kind of example. Yeah, no, I think it's uh, that's a very good point. Um, in a sense, I think. Uh, like you said, I mean, it's sort of, if you are put in the spotlight early, um, or if you are, let's say, uh, thrust into the spotlight as a child, it does cause you to grow up in kind of a natural circumstance, in a way. Because it's sort of like, instead of, let's say, being being let to, to roam in a field freely, and to discover who you are at your own pace, you know, sometimes there are outside forces, external forces that, that, uh, that let's say, close in the you know, closing the boundaries, closing the, that, that put pressure on you. And I think that, that's, that's a very natural thing that's going to happen. And, and people respond to that the way they will. You know, some people, let's say, will, 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 may, may not be able to handle that kind of pressure. You know, it just depends on the, on the person. Um, but I think like just, um, in my case, yes, for sure. I mean, I, I think I was lucky to have that grounding and that foundation in a sense from also those around me, my parents, also, you know, good mentors, 
people who kept me on the ground. I think that's another thing as well. Also, not you know, sort of to keep my head out of the clouds, let's say, you know, or or to 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 keep me keep me grounded, and not to let's say, uh, not to not to let some sort of sense of superiority cultivate itself within, you know, because that's that's also I've been through that state as well, you know. And and having been through it, and also having gone through the exact opposite, hitting rock bottom, you know, um, it gives you the perspective of like, oh, you know, there's no point, there's absolutely no no real good reason to be like that, you know. In fact, for me, that's you know the 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 essential quality of just of, of having humility, of of being uh, humble, sort of in front of your art. I think that's something that that you come. Uh, that you take out of it, um, but yeah, I mean, I can look back and my at my journey and and be and 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 sort of sort of reminisce in a, in a in a in a positive way, like sort of the things that I've that I've gone through in order to get to where I am. But at the same time, that path, as you said, is like it's it doesn't uh, it depends on the individual. You know, it, it does take it does take a toll on on a lot of people, and and uh, but that's also the nature of show business. Yeah. yeah. And it's that kind of challenge that when anyone, regardless of age, goes up to, it's it's good for them if they're able to take it and they're able to have the, the right mindset and the right values, the value set going into it, they rise to that challenge. And speaking about rising to that challenge, your first challenge from a competition perspective was the Canadian Music Competition, the CMC for short. For short. So take us back to your first CMC. What was preparing for it like? And what was it like to win your first CMC? Um, yeah, I mean, those, you know, the CMCs, they would be an annual thing. And so, of course, they would become some sort of like annual event or some sort of uh, convention, let's say, that you would look forward to so that you could see your friends or you could see, you know, all the, the kind of the, the local musical media that you became, you know, familiar with over time. So that was sort of like, it was sort of like something every single year that you would look forward to, you know, in the same way that you would look forward to, let's say, like, uh, well, in, in my mind, at least, like, if you imagine as, as if prom was happening every year, you know, kind of thing. It was, it was, um, there was something um, exciting about it, because I think also when you're young, you're also not, let's say, aware or you're not totally aware of, let's say, the idea of competition or even being fearless going in with, let's say, more confidence than you should or kind of thing, but that's a very, that's a natural thing. And I think um, it was good for that to, to, to happen naturally in a sense. So I think just like being able to, well, you know, to prepare every single year that required a certain amount of dedication, you know, sort of, I needed to practice a little bit more than I wanted to, you know, um, uh, but then also that taught me discipline. I think it was a very important, let's say, early source of discipline. Just being able to to go there and 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 play and 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 work so that you could actually have fun in the occasion and and be with your friends and run around and scream and all that stuff, right? Um, but uh, yeah, so I would say like it was it was more of a. I think I think my attitude towards competitions when I was young was actually quite healthy in that sense. There was a healthy competition. In a sense that let's say I was confident in myself and I didn't really sort of look to my side, you know, 
like uh, while you're running the 100 meter dash, you know, you're not looking really to your side, but you're just kind of looking ahead. I think I was always quite good with that uh, when I was young. Um, and because of that also, I think it was just like to, to start to develop a very hands-on, a very, a very confident yet healthy um, relationship with the instrument as well. It was like, okay, yeah, I mean, that, that was something to, to already develop, like the fact that, oh, this is not only just an instrument that you play, but it's something that represents you as well. It becomes a part of you. Um, and you, and you don't have to be ashamed of it, you know, because again, it's like, you know, it's maybe not, not everyone in your class is going to be doing the same thing as you, but at the same time, this becomes a very important part of your identity. And so I think that was very, doing the CMCs, they were, they were a big part of that, the consistency of having, let's say an annual competition and then being able to, let's say, go there and, and, and feel as if you do well and yet have fun at the same time. I think that was a very important, let's say, um, important marker in just developing a healthy relationship with my instrument and kind of already developing, let's say, the awareness of what's possible. So, Yeah, and having fun, you did. I mean, not only did you win one, you didn't just win two, you won five CMCs. And not just five CMCs, five consecutive CMCs. And with each of these CMCs, all five of them, you received the highest score of any instrument or age category. Now, I want to put this into perspective for our audience and also to remind them, Kirsten, at this stage of his life, was only eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old, 11 years old, and 12 years old at this time. So put that into perspective. So looking back on these CMCs, what do you think set you apart from other prize winners of the CMC? Um, I think it might have been, well, in a, in a sense, it's like, because actually the technical level would be quite high, you know, it would be very consistently high, um, at that level. But I think perhaps it was just, you know, the, the willingness, the willingness to express and the direct, the, the directness, I guess, of that, uh, that, that, that path takes for me, I think I was always a very emotionally based player in a sense that like, okay, I feel whatever I'm feeling very strongly and, and I'm able to, let's say, find a way to translate that into the notes or into the playing. Um, but just to kind of like, to, to make a statement, to go there and kind of just to not care about the individual aspects, like, oh, technical perfection or cleanliness or stuff like that, not to focus on anything like that, but just to go there and in my mind, at least when I was young, like tell a story, you know, and, and be a sort of emotional um, conduit somehow. And I think that, yeah, I think that was sort of, uh, I, it came across, I guess when I was young, it came across very hands-on because I was very, again, completely fearless. It's like, you know, there's something about it that there's a directness with which sometimes it's, it's interesting hearing children play music, the directness with which, and the purity in a way of purpose, uh, uh, when there's sort of, let's say, um, not, not so, not so much complicated things going on in the psyche. Let's say that it's just the directness with which you speak sometimes can be quite, um, miraculous, uh, at some point as well, even if you listen to, for example, like, like some, some other, like some great classical musicians or just 
musicians in general when they're young sometimes when they've already had this kind of like desire to express or this sort of affinity with expression and you know not just playing the instrument but expression you know and i think that's um for me i think uh, there was a there was a certain directness there i think yeah 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 no absolutely and you know, myself, I, I've also gone to the CMC, but this was way after you went to the CMC. This was years after. I went in when I was 16 years old and, well, I made it to the final the finals of the CMC for that year. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Even from the piano side, really any instrument category, but my instrument being piano, it's not just about the technical or the technique. It's also about the the, the musicality. And that's something that I think many people who hear about music competitions don't realize. You know, I was mentioning earlier how people talk about prodigies or whatever, or not to tell you even talk about prodigies, like talented musicians. They only look at the technique. They say, oh, they can play Flight the Bumblebee the fastest. No, it's not. You know, that understanding of the piece, the understanding of the repertoire, the understanding of what the composer's philosophy is behind that piece of music, and also towards composition itself and harmonic structure and melodic structure counterpoint all of that is so important when you're going into a specific piece and a specific performance now of course when you're younger you're not necessarily at a point where you, you study all that history and all, all that stuff but through your teacher at least you understand at least not i don't want to say the basics because it's not basic it is quite advanced material it's you understand the first, second, and third steps towards building up musical maturity, right? And that kind of musical maturity comes with time as you grow up. And the CMC featuring mainly young musicians is an example of that. It features great technical capability, but even better musical prowess and musical awareness and musical maturity. And it's interesting because I remember when I was preparing for the CMC, at least over in the piano side, there there was sort of like, a, I don't want to say a blacklist, but a sort of caution to use Rachmaninoff's pieces because they were very technically challenging, but they were even more musically challenging because if you look at each line, each finger's, I mean, to put it in layperson's terms, each finger is busy, but to put it in musician's terms, each and every single note is a part of a specific melodic line, counter melody, or a harmonic, or a harmonic structure of some sort. But they're all interchanging so well, and they each tell their own story. And I'm glad you mentioned the, the purpose of story because that's also the same thing in every other classical music, uh, classical instrument as well. And because it's so difficult, at least for Rachmaninoff, many kids who go into the CMC playing Rachmaninoff don't tend to do as well as people who played Liszt or people who played Brahms or people who played Beethoven. Because, again, the kids aren't, no matter how talented you are as a kid, you're not mature enough. You're still a kid, right? So it's interesting because I heard about this sort of kind of caution, this yellow flag, so to speak, towards using Rachmaninoff. It, it, it's really fascinating. I never used Rachmaninoff in my, in my repertoire for the CMC, but I mean, it was really interesting in that sense. So, was there anything like that in the violin sense? Oh, for sure. I mean, that's that's, also, that's one of those uh, natural things. It's like one, let's say, the, you know, certain composers being a little bit more challenging, or let's say, requiring, in let's say, teachers' words, you know, a more mature, uh, let's say, a more maturity to pull off convincingly and stuff like that. I mean, that's very natural. 
Um, you know, I mean, I, I doubt that, let's say, at a, uh, at a you know young age that you would be, let's say, playing Brahms or playing playing any of these sort of uh, more uh, even Beethoven and stuff like that, that you would be playing more Vinyavsky and stuff. Because, of course, I guess there would be a more of an emphasis on on technical ability just based on because that's what you've been learning to do at the early stages of your you know musical life for being able to 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 um be on your way to mastering an instrument so of course there would be let's say uh more of an emphasis on traditionally virtuosic stuff um that let's say would be uh that wouldn't let's say pose as much of a musical architecture you know kind of question or uh, being able, let's say, to see mel see melody in many different angles. I mean, that kind of thing. I guess would would come later. Um. So yes, for sure. I mean, you would be, let's say, you you would you would play even at the beginning student concertos, for example, or or just like basic basic. I wouldn't say more basic, but like virtuosic stuff like Vinyavsky that place more of a of an importance, let's say, on on uh, on basic technical execution and violinistic um violinistic techniques then let's say something that requires a more philosophical mind um but i would say even when doing those kind of rep that kind of repertoire what what i think gets not just a jury but everyone that gets the attention or that actually wins people over is and i think that's also the the, the in a way a true definition of musicality is when the playing is complete to the point where uh, you it makes you forget about technique. It makes you forget about the instrument. It makes you forget about the, the means of, of doing it, but you're just presented with the, the metaphysical, like, you know, that the musical essence of, of what it is. I think that to be, to be able to, to make people forget about technique but instead just to be confronted with something that is emotionally stimulating or affecting in some way, you know, I think that's a sign of, of let's say, um, uh, let's take the combination of all the elements, you know, um, in, in a way that's organic um, and, and natural, that feels natural enough to be convincing. And I think that's also the kind of, the kind of performances that, um, that people connect with the most. Than people that would you know people would pay money to see because let's say that they would be the most emotionally or, or whatever transformative in some way but that also means that let's say um so the, the funny thing is the difficult thing is let's say the mastery of technique is so that you forget about it so you're able to forget about it and to almost you know sort of take it out of the picture of what's most important it's like you try and transcend the instrument in the end, um, but of course, I think that's at, at that at that age, you know, when you're when you're eight or nine or twelve. Of course, those questions will never come, you know, into consideration. Sort of like just again, you know. Um, but at the same time, if if there is, let's say, a willingness to express, like to put your emotions out there as a little kid, let's say, um, that takes a certain amount of vulnerability. And a certain amount of courage. So in that sense, it's like just to be to be able to, let's say, emotionally open yourself up in front of a large number of people, even at a young age. I think that's that's uh, in a way a marker for what's to come next. I find just like the, if you have enough, 
um, an affinity with, with just wanting to go on stage just to tell that story or to, you know, to, uh, to open yourself up and to ex just basically to express yourself. I think that's a good start. Yeah, no, and, and that, that's a great way of putting it. I mean, the ability to transcend the technique and to transcend the instrument itself and not have to worry about it, that's like Ultra Instinct right there. That's literally Ultra Instinct, you know? <laughs> you're, you have, your mastery over your technique is just so well, and your mastery in the music sense is over musicality is so strong. You don't even have to think. You're, you're in a flow state and you're able to express the music as you, you become one with the music as a whole. That's the best. That's like in my personal experience, that's like the pinnacle of performance, of musical performance, because it's so, it's so difficult to get to that point, even for experienced musicians in any instrument. It's so difficult to get to that point because as you mentioned, opening yourself up to a an audience that alone is already nerve-wracking for many people even outside of music i mean the greatest one of the greatest fears out there is public speaking so being in front of that audience is already nerve-wracking enough let alone you have to play at your absolute best and especially in the competition now you're playing not just for an audience that wants to listen to you but you're playing for an audience that knows the music that is trained in that area and in many cases have many much 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 more experience than you do in that specific repertoire or that's repertoire set so that's nerve-wracking that's so nerve-wracking and that's one of the reasons why you and i in our own instruments we practice so much because we want to get over that sense of insecurity we want to be able to understand and be as close to the oneness with the music as possible so that when we perform it just comes naturally and it also kind of brings into some of the teachings of bruce lee even being formless like water everybody knows that kind of catchphrase that philosophical phrase that bruce lee had you know being being formless like water when you put water into a teapot it becomes a teapot when you put it into a bottle it becomes the bottle you adapt so well to each circumstance to each environment and you adapt to that so well that you become one with it that sort of thinking also transcends and is also applicable in music performance. I'm rambling a little bit, but I, I mean, that's something that I've, that I, you know, when you brought this point up, point up, like these two major points just popped up in my mind. It's like, wow, like actually that's kind of like a way to, to, to describe it for, for our listeners and also for our viewers as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you. Um, definitely. I think there's something about sort of the, you know, adapting to each individual circumstance and accepting that it is unique, celebrating the fact that let's say every single circumstance is unique, of course, to be able to make use of those circumstances fully or to enjoy those circumstances fully, there has to be a foundation underneath. There has to be, let's say, the, the physical aspect that you can, that you can rely on, not only your technique, but also physical wellness and, and, and fitness and, and stuff like that, regardless of, let's say, what's happening in, in your mind, in your emotions, in your personal life, what, let's say, would those, what aspects, what elements would make that circumstance unique? Not just, let's say, again, sort of the, the concert hall or the people or the, the, the people that you're playing with, but also what's happening within, you know, um, and just to be able to adapt to each circumstance so as to, let's say, be able to, 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 
to try and do justice to the music from whatever angle you're coming from at that particular point. Um, it definitely does. I mean, it's sort of one of those things like consistency again, the relationship between consistency and evolution, or in this sense, being, being able to adapt and being formless, as you say, I think that's, that's a great point. So, yeah. Yeah, no, thank you very much uh, for that. But it's all thanks to, you know, your insight into that. That's what kind of popped up the, the, uh, the, the memory and the knowledge and that idea that came up in my head and being able to adapt in your sense. I mean, you've had so many years of experience doing that. And then as we would know, after the CMC, you went to the menuing competition. So talk about adaptation to what is essentially the Olympics slash Paralympics of violin competition so take us through that preparation process what was the audition process like and when you got through the auditions and later on to the main competition how did you prepare for the menuing competition yeah i guess you know i think i guess at the beginning it was sort of like something that you wouldn't really go into with much expectation because at that point of course it's the menu and it's an international competition it'll be your first and so of course I think uh, it was m more, I guess, also my parents would instill in me like the, the mentality of just going into it as a good experience, as a good wealth of experience that you can get out of at least, you know, or for that to be, let's say, the main thing, rather than, let's say, uh, thinking that you're going to win it all. And as as it's tempting that you would think as a, as a young kid, you know, because of course, um, but I think, yeah, so it was just something that I would audition for, like in, in any uh, for, for like for any other event, you know, just to go into it, prepare well, um, practice, you know, and then go into the recording studio or the doing go doing the videotape happy, you know, um, just keeping a level mind, keeping a positive spirit, and that that being basically it. Um, I think it was interesting the 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 the, the preparation before the menu because I think it was also somehow somehow it, it reflected, I guess. A, not only the, the experience itself, like the menu and becoming sort of like a Diagon Alley moment in my life, you know, like when you first discover like a, another world, right? Or you first actually becoming aware of another world, the, the international musical milieu and let's say the, the kind of that's, but before that it was sort of a cathartic moment because I think, you know, for, for, for a while before the competition, I guess that was, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was unfortunate to have I would call less than ideal teaching, you know? So, so in that sense, I mean, the, 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 the lessons, the lesson atmosphere leading up to that point would become so unhealthy and so toxic in a way. Um, and, and, and becoming, let's say more and more, uh, more apparent as I look back, the more that I look back on that, that instance, like it was just becoming incredibly, um, stagnant for, for also for my development, but also like, um, just for my mentality in general, like becoming very toxic that my parents decided to stop lessons with whoever I was working with a month before. And then it was only until let's say like that I was able to find, there was a, there was a, there was a jury member actually from previous, from a few years before in, in, in CMC, uh, who we got in, in contact with sort of desperately because I just, I still needed guidance. I still needed some lessons before I went to the thing. Um, that, uh, her name is Laurence Kayale. She was someone who's still very, that I hold, you know, very dear to me, but was in just basically like 
being able to feel in two lessons the freedom to uh or the, even the validation of like oh following my um, letting letting let's say whatever musical essence wants to pour out pour out rather than let's say forming it into something that was unnatural to me um i think that was that was a huge thing in, in a way that was that was what made it cathartic um in a sense that i think as I look back in many instances in my life, like those transformative moments was really just sort of like, not let's say making a hard transformation into something, but more like just like realizing something, having like a little ping moment and then the floodgates open, you know, a whole different perspective appears and a whole different direction appears in front of you. I think those, that was sort of that, that kind of moment. And in a way got me got me prepared before the competition in the sense that I would be I was in a much healthier mindset as well. Um, but I also have to speak about the volcano that year because that, that was also a big a, a big effect on uh, let's say my mindset going into the competition because of course that's the Icelandic volcano that that erupted and basically closed down Europe's airspace basically going to the competition we were lucky enough to land in frankfurt you know just in time basically for for we were already on the continent before airspace was closed but we still had to find a way to get to oslo in norway where the competition was being held and i remember during that time we took maybe 50 something hours worth of train and, and bus wow. from germany where we were all the way up to norway and so that was already, and my parents were with me, we were with me, fortunately, but I think it was already that, that kind of adventure, my first time in Europe. And like the first time you get see, you see like train stations packed with people, like worried people and certain people, it was quite the experience in a sense. And I remember not touching the violin for maybe three days. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's a before, long time. That's, that's a long, long time. time. <laughs> that's a really long time. I think even for, to touch, to not touch the violin for three days now, for me, it would be like something that I would hesitate to, to even, you know, fathom in a way. Um, and so that was quite something, but it did sort of release, I think, all expectation from my mind. The fact that I was, was grateful to be there. Um, and I did res reflect in, 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 to the extent that I wasn't actually nervous at all before the first round or even nervous on stage. I was just sort of like, I was happy to be there and luckily enough the competition atmosphere was also very positive was very was you know not sort of overly competitive as many competitions can be i mean the atmosphere but that i was just grateful to be there and i just told myself literally like before the first round let's go and just tell a story you know so you wouldn't go in there with like again looking to your side but you would just go in there and have and and exercise your own relationship with your with the music that you're playing and i think in that sense, not only was it, of course, career-wise, like a big, a big moment, like the defining moment, I guess, what put me on the path that I am on still now, like, but also a big personal moment as well. It's like, still, I look back to those moments and I, I aspire to have that kind of, or to never lose that kind of purity toward, of thought, of mentality towards performing. And then you're just there to share something and you're not there to prove something. You know, and so that was, yeah, the big yeah. takeaway. 
that that's such an important mindset because as you know you know winning isn't everything right winning isn't everything there are going to be times where you're going to have to lose and you can learn so much from losing because to use the old adage there's always going to be someone better than you so you always want to be on your tip-top shape so to speak right on a previous episode that I recorded with Scott Russell, who is the sportscaster for CBC Olympics, Olympic primetime sportscaster, we talked about this point. In the world of sports, there's the issue of sportsmanship, right? That's the most important lesson that you can learn in any athletic discipline. And I think it's the same lesson here in music as well, because especially in the world of competition, but really in any form of non-competitive scenario, when you're working with musicians, especially if you're working with an orchestra or an ensemble of any kind, of any number, you have to be so conscious of your of your own talents, but also of the other person's talents and being respectful of that as well. Because chances are, these are the same people you'll be working with for the rest of your career as a performing musician and as a recording musician. So this sense of animosity if you have animosity towards another musician it's just not going to work because what happens when you do end up working with that person it's not going to end well and it doesn't do any good for you just it just hurts your mentality it's not healthy you know and especially in this day and age when mental health is now an, an increasing concern especially after covid you can't have that you really can't have that and music is all about sharing the beauty of an art to other people. It's not about trying to antagonize and hurt other people or worse, kill other people using art. You know, it's, it's a very, very important distinction to have in this area. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. Again, great point. So I would assume that the preparation process was somewhat similar to the CMC process, you know, going into the Maywin competition, but you know, what were those similarities? And if there were any differences, what was what were the differences between the CMC prep and the Menuhin prep? Um, there wasn't much, actually. I think that going into it, it was pretty much the same idea, just that there was more repertoire. There was more there was more repertoire to be had, um, of course, in the Menuhin, and there would be, let's say, the the very in the very unique in a way requirement of improvisation. That we had in the first round of, of you would be given let's say eight bars of, of something and you would be you'd be you'd be made to improvise on that for a few minutes so that was quite interesting it was sort of like something that i never did before really at least in the classical setting um uh on violin you know something that, that i would prepare for um which was quite interesting um i would say though of course all you in a sense, is of course you practice the pieces, but then I think even at that early age, it's like you're trying to find a personal relationship with the pieces that you play, and of course that also influences your your choice of repertoire at the very beginning. So you try and find things that you you seem to have a natural affinity with, you know. Um, but I would say like so within that, a lot of the work was was happening uh, just as much, let's say without the instrument as with the instruments. Like you're just trying to find pieces with which you know you can really connect with. Um, and and let's say maybe, if not at the very beginning, but throughout the process that you get to practice and you get to know a piece, that you then 
start to um, you start to develop a personal relationship with that piece by way of just getting to know it better and to seeing what you can. So I guess it was it was it was that in the sense that's sort of where you know where music is different from sport in that sense because you know you're looking for something quite personal you're looking for something that's not necessarily quantifiable but something that let's say is just something that can be felt that can be um, that can be transmitted um, that is something that we can all relate to in a sense it's like um, emotion basically and uh, I think being able to cultivate that at the very beginning that was a priority, I guess, in preparing for competitions to always remember that even if it is a competition, it doesn't serve you any purpose to think of the competition aspect. In fact, you just try and treat it as a concert. You know, you just try and treat it like any other concert and you try and treat it as um, that even the idea of competition is non-existent. You know, as much as that's hard because it's a competition, you know, the, 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 the whole atmosphere is, is there to, to remind you that it's a competition sometimes, but to be able to, let's say, um, to, to forget about that and to have, let's say a higher or, or a deeper purpose at heart to latch onto just based on your personal relationship with the music. I think that was the biggest takeaway. I mean, at the end of the day, the competition itself is a concert. You know, you are performing for people at the end of the day, so it is a concert, even lit in the literal sense as as well. And I'm glad you mentioned the difference between music and sports, and that's that difference is something that I think many people who aren't familiar with the world of musical performance, especially classical musical performance, they don't really understand that because. In sports, it's really easy to see what the end result is, right? It's quantifiable, as you said. If you're playing basketball, it's whoever scores the most baskets, who has the highest score at the end of the game between two teams, you win, right? And also within that, if you want to go a little bit deeper, who scored the most baskets, who had the most assists, rebounds, all that sort of stuff, right? You can go into statistics, numbers, they're all quantifiable. Same with hockey, who scored the most goals, you know, how many saves did the uh, did the goalie make? Passes, assists. Same with soccer. Same with any sport out there. Even in running. Even in, in swimming, track and field. Who had the fastest time? Who had the fastest qualification time? Who had the fastest heats time? Who had the fastest time in the finals to win that gold medal, the silver medal, or the, the bronze medal? Right? Maybe the only sport that's closest to music would probably be figure skating because that's where there's the quantifiable but also the unquantifiable the qualifiable which is really the, the quality of the routine that the figure skater is doing in their performance right and that's the sort of thing that makes music competitions so different from sports competitions most sports competitions you don't have a goal to score. You don't have a number of saves to to defend your team or yourself from, right? Or you know, to use the, the UFC example, you're not fighting a fight. You're not you're not fighting a to knock out the other person or to to win by unanimous decision or by split decision or, or whatever, 
right? You're not doing that. You're playing the best interpretation of a performance. That's really difficult to judge. So for many people who go who have no idea or very little idea about music competitions, this is a very big barrier, so to speak, for them to look or to get to overcome when they're watching the Menuhin competition or in the piano world, the Chopin competition. So that sort of thing is why I think classical music and music in general is a lot more difficult for people to understand. It's that barrier. Yeah, and in a sense, it's very true. I think uh, it definitely gets people talking, though, which is interesting um, because, you know, it's it's interesting when you do see what happens in competitions, in music competitions, that anything can happen, basically. You know, um, there can be people can discuss, let's say, anything from eliminations that they, they think shouldn't have happened at earlier rounds and all that stuff. But it's just like to, to the end of it, it's like anything can happen because of the fact that, let's say, we're dealing with something that is not necessarily quantifiable, that we're dealing with something that's intensely personal, you know, also relating to the, the tastes of jury members and and also, let's say, the, the, you know, one's own individual approach going into a competition, how that affects interpretation and all that stuff. Um, so basically, in that sense, it's like you don't really, as musicians, you don't really go into or ideally you wouldn't want to go into competitions with let's say that you that you you want to win in a sense you in a way it's maybe helpful to to think that oh you you are capable of winning you know um but at the same time it's like just still it's it's more a reflection of an inner personal journey to be able to to just to to stand there and to do your thing in a situation like that and yet at the same time to to only be mindful of what is internal that you want to, let's say, externalize. I think that's, in a way, a, a, a big personal statement. In a sense, it's less of a sort of a, a you know, yeah, something that you can define, say, on a podium. Like you're looking at the podium, you're looking at the whatever it is, and you define that as a goal. But more like you're you're looking at, let's say, first of all, yeah, experience, getting the experience of that. Is, is valuable, but also just like personal transformation is a, is a is a is an end goal. I find just being a, to see how you can change your own life or your own perspective, and at the same time make something meaningful and bring something meaningful and positive to the audience, whoever's listening, even if it's jury member or anyone who's just listening on the sides. Same thing, um, and. You know, in the end, it's like, yeah, the rankings, the, 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 the rankings in the end, the jury's decision, you know, they will represent basically its, its own, let's say, um, its own dynamic in a way. But I think just being able to care about just that, your role, your own role when you're going into a competition, I think that's the most important thing. Um, and you never know. You never know. It's like just... It's, I think it's, it's all about goosebumps in the end. It's all about the, the ability to sort of impart goosebumps and rather than, let's say, oh, like the idea of perfection, but no, actually the, the, the idea of like being able to reach someone and being able to impact them emotionally. No. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. That's, at the end of the day, it's being your best, not necessarily being the best, but being your best. 
when it comes to performance. And looking back at each and every round that you went through the menu and competition, take us through each and every one of those rounds that you competed. Um, so how many rounds were there? And what do you think were the strongest moments and the not so strong moments of each round that you were in? Yeah, um, there were two rounds. So I was in the junior division. Um, and of course, there's a senior division, but in the junior division, there's two rounds. And in a way, it's interesting when there's when there's actually less rounds, because then you have actually less opportunity to showcase a range of abilities, let's say, or a range of, of uh, affinity or aptitude with different musical styles, let's say. Um, but I found that it was interesting, again, like this this idea of improvis improvisation. Like, of course, you would have to play um, some Bach, Bach, of course, being something very universal. And then seeing as as the, the competition was in Norway, there would be Norwegian repertoire as well. There would be Edward Grieg, Grieg sonatas, or even something by Ule Bull, who was sort of like the Norwegian Paganini. He was a, a violin virtuoso in, in around the same time from Norway who wrote things in the same, with the same kind of prowess and the same, you know, as Paganini did. And so, of course, there would be a piece by that. Um, but then, of course, there would be improvisation, which for me, I think, was like the, it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't like something that struck fear, but it was like, oh, it was like this elect electrifying excitement. Like, oh, I want to see what I can do with that, you know. Um, and so, but I think the first round was really quite, as I, even if I look back, like quite exemplary in the way that I approached it. Like even as a 13-year-old going into it with no expectation, but just going into it almost with like a very naive, like a very innocent look on what it means to share something or to perform, right? Like, um, and, and that, that for me actually remains quite a highlight in a sense. It's like something that I aspire to always live up to, never lose sight of that. Um, the finals, I think, then it was becoming a little bit more apparent that, oh, okay, like this is getting a bit, you know, turning up the heat here. So I think in a sense, um, but again, I wouldn't say that it affected me that much, like in terms of being nervous. I think I was maybe slightly nervous before the, the final, um, uh, final orchestral with orchestra performance. Um, actually, I would say also that... Uh, so the final round was divided into two parts. There would be a chamber, you would play a sonata, a movement from a sonata, and you would play chamber music with, let's say, another violinist and violist. And then there would be the final thing would be with a showpiece with orchestra. Um, but I would say it was just, yeah, I mean, looking back, it was quite, it was just like a testament to, to the ability to, if you are in the right mindset, if somehow you can create the right circumstances for that mindset to happen what can transpire, you know, like just you're focused then on really on the music and less about anything else external. And that for me, I think was, was, and it was, you know, it was just basically, uh, you know, that that was all I really wanted to care about. And so maybe just the waiting part before going on stage, that's always a bit tough because you want to get out there and you want to do your thing. Right. But uh, I think when I was on stage, somehow the combination of things, the volcano, the fact that, you know, you were able to, m to meet friends with your competitors, you know, like there was a healthy atmosphere going on there. There was, 
you know, the fact that you were discovering a new world and that you were just happy to be there. I think that caused me to, to get into a very pure state, I guess, on stage. So that caused me not to be nervous. And I was therefore able to play in a way that was pure, you know, not forced, not sort of, uh, not conceited, not artificial, you know, but just, I was there just to play basically. Yeah. Yeah. And that final round is something that I, I remember very fondly because back in 2010, this was after I found out that I found out that you won the, the competition. Actually, the way how I found out was that our grandparents, our grandma and our grandfather, they were paying attention to the whole, to the whole competition. And your mom told our grandparents about the win. And then there was also a DVD of that final round that I watched. And I was like, my goodness, man. Like, <laughs> like I saw it, like, even then I saw, I'm just like, yep, there's a good reason why he won. Why, why you won. You know, I, I that sense of the, the sort of Zen that you described from the volcano and the surrounding circumstances around that time that really showed when you performed because you essentially tapped into perfected ultra instinct during that performance. You pretty much tapped into it that, that moment. And you, you may not have noticed it when you were performing, but I was looking at the conductor at the time. He, like, even when he was, when he was conducting you, he was looking at you and he was like, he was like, like, wow, this kid's onto something, you know, like in the middle of the performance. And I'm just like, wow, that's, that's just something else. And then the, when you, when you complete that piece, that performance of Sarasante's Zagunavizen, literally the entire audience roared, erupted with applause, literally. I'm not sure if you remember that, but, you know, watching that clip, oh my goodness, like people, people resonated with your performance. That moment, I think, from an audience perspective and from an from a listener's perspective, that was the moment that, that you saw, or at least that I saw, or what audience members saw. That was a legend in the making already at that point. Yeah, it was. It was quite. Uh, I guess it was the coming the the coming together of all the elements somehow. Um, and I do remember a little bit of that. Just. I don't really remember too much of that, of the specific, let's say, images of that day or looking out into it, but I do remember the feeling, you know, it was sort of like, uh, yeah, there was something quite, again, it was, it was like a, like a personal, yeah, it was, it was like one of those moments that you do remember that where pretty much all the elements come together, you know, where all the stars aligned kind of thing. And, uh, yeah. I mean, for that reason, it's it's still like one of the, even if it was a competition, it would be still one of those performance experiences I would look on, look back on, and 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 think, oh, okay, and that's that's something that I that I, that the the character and the, the sort of the representation of that is something that I want to stay true to, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And speaking about that performance, how did your family feel? When they were seeing that performance right there, the Sarasate's Zagunavizen, and you know, they, when they, they very, for sure they would have been watching it in the audience or somewhere within the physical vicinity of the concert hall. What was your family's feeling like in that moment? And 
what was the moment like when you heard your name called out as the first prize winner of the entire competition? What was that feeling like? Um, oh, it was definitely, you, you don't, you don't ever really expect something like that. Right. And so, um, but I think my parents also like for them, it was also a discovery, like the whole experience, like leading up to that point as well. I think it was sort of like just to rediscover, I think for, for, for my dad to rediscover Europe and for my mom just to, to be there as part of the experience that's outside of Canada. That's in a, you know, place where they don't speak really like they don't, well, they don't speak English as an official language, you know, like just the whole, the whole atmosphere of that was quite exciting for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, of course, the, the, I guess it would have been, been as exhilarating as it was for, for a little 13 year old me. I think it was just sort of like, um, you don't really realize the magnitude of that kind of, let's say, announcement at first. It's sort of like, oh, you know, everything is, 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 yeah, it doesn't really hit you. But at the same time, I think over time, you, I remember sort of like it did dawn on me that that was actually the beginning of something rather than the end of something. That was actually the, the again, Diagon Alley moment somehow. It was like, the opening of an entire new world set with challenges with with even more challenges but also more like breadth of everything in between you know like and, and so that was i think in a way looking back at that the, the reaction of of uh, towards that announcement i think was more like oh okay this is the beginning of something you know yeah it was the end of the beginning basically yeah. It was really the start of something incredible. And soon after that win, you immediately would debut in Europe. And let me just put it to the audience and remind the audience that winning the International Yehudi Menuhin competition from a violin world, from the violin perspective, when you win that competition, your life changes overnight, literally, to the extent where you immediately have concerts all across Europe, all across the world, your name is out there. Your career has just begun. So you would immediately perform for King Harold V of Norway that same year in 2010. And then you would also later debut in Vienna. Well, that's like the classical musician's dream is to perform in Vienna, a place rich with classical music history across so many different centuries. Having seen both sides of the coin, that is, having seen both your life before winning the Menuhin competition and after winning the Menuhin competition, what was the difference between your approach to your performances before winning and after winning? Mm -hmm. um, for sure. Uh, just to clarify, I mean, anyway, it was with the Vienna Chamber Orchestra, but the actually the concert was actually in Rome. Ah, in right. Rome. Yeah. Thanks. And so, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's 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 a funny one because it was a, it was an event that was. Um, sort of the celebration of relationships between Austria and Italy. And uh, it was held actually at Quirinale Palace, which is sort of the presidential palace of, of Italy. But so that was actually not really quite something. And to play with Vienna Chamber Orchestra, that was, that was also like the first of something like the, the awareness of something that was so, you know, infused with, with, with history and all that. So that was, uh, you know, in a way though, I think going back to the question, there was perhaps at first there was this awareness of again that pressure that you know this expectation that you had to you had to live up to something 
And I think in, in, in a way, when you're dealing with something like art or with music, sometimes that can be inspiration killer. You know, that can be, let's say, even a momentum killer. Like just to feel as if you need to live up to something. Um, and then the fear of not living up to that. I think that's something quite, uh, quite, quite, the thought of that is quite scary. And so for me, I think at first, even though, of course, uh, following the competition, I was, you know, I was in sort of like super Saiyan mode, if you want to call it that, like my, my, like my, my, my opinion of myself, I guess, was quite as naturally it would be, it would be quite inflated and I would be quite cocky in a way. But at the same time, I think I knew the back of my mind, even if I didn't want to confront that, that, that there was, there was expectations to be lived up to. And there was an added pressure to what you did, you know. Um, on the other hand, it wasn't like a full awareness, I don't think. You know, I was still sort of like quite oblivious to the fact that like, oh, this is the start. Of, or this could be the start of something really that carries on into the far future. Or something that, let's say, takes a central importance in my life. I think at that point, I was still maybe viewing violin as a kind of side thing. Because I was still in school and I was still thinking, oh, I'm going to keep my options open, you know. Um, it was not only until like, okay, then you would you would suffer, let's say, your first sort of like, your, your first letdowns, you know, not living up to again, or hitting rock bottom, being, let's say, um, being brought back to earth, even by people who you looked up to at that time, you know. Like, I think that's a big thing. And, and in a way, I'm thankful for those instances, you know, because... They brought me back down to earth. So they give you perspective after, let's say, being feeling as if you deserve all the, you know, all the all the hype or the kind of the cockiness that comes along with, you know, winning such a thing. But then also required me to start like to start that process of again of growing up and also finding your deep your deeper reason of being, like quite early. And in that sense, I think I was quite that was actually. Um, nice that, that that happened um but it was more like yeah it was that transformation that got kick-started a bit early i think that was what differentiated like the question leading up to the question of whether i actually wanted to do this as a career because believe it or not after even shortly after the competition there was not i didn't really sort of go 100 percent into it head first you know like oh i'm gonna be a concert violinist i was still kind of like oh you know like i'm gonna keep my options open but then leading to the everything that led to asking the question of like what does music actually mean to you what does what role does music actually play in your life you know or why or how asking these kind of questions for even maybe the first time in my life you know i think after the competition, that was the kind of atmosphere that spurred me in that direction. It, it made me ask these questions earlier so that I would then actually have a, a definite answer for myself and be able to, let's say, throw myself into music making completely. Whereas before the competition, obviously, even if I was doing VCMC and all that stuff, it would it would kind of be like a more of a still of a, of a glorified extracurricular, you know, kind of thing. But I think at some point that Everything that happened out of the competition made me discover um, what it means to me personally to to make music and to to do that as a way of of you know getting you out of bed every morning you know kind of thing. 
So, yeah. Yeah. Yo, absolutely. Those early experiences and that early reckoning of yourself is something that everyone has to go through. But in your case, you really had to go through it all at once at the same time because of just the sheer scale of what you were able to accomplish. You are the first and currently the only Canadian to win first prize at the menu win competition. That's how landmark to the audience out there. That's how landmark and that's how significant his win is. To put that into perspective, imagine in the entire history of the Olympics, we've only had one person, one Canadian win a gold medal. That's literally how landmark that is. So that sort of pressure, that sort of experience really does wonders for you, but can also really tear you down if you're not careful with that kind of experience. And again, that's goes, this goes back to the support that you had from your family. It also goes back to the support that you had from our grandparents, right? From our grandma and our grandfather, that sort of, yeah, that sort of support is so important. And to, like, as you said, bring you down back to earth and to be grounded and connected to the reality of what's happening around you you would still also have many experiences that were quite unique as well. To date, you've performed for two governor generals of Canada, at least one Canadian prime minister. I remember you had a, a performance with former Canadian prime minister, Stephen Harper, and then for the king of Norway. What are some of the similarities between performing for a head of state or a head of government and the and performances for the general audience what are the similarities and i should say also differences between these two types of performances i wouldn't say there's any difference to be honest um you do approach you, you do approach the the performance from the music itself and in that sense it's sort of you don't really you don't really at least i wouldn't pay attention to let's say who's listening you know it doesn't make much of a difference really um you just all you want to do is provide the same kind of experience, let's say, um, hopefully transformative experience anywhere you go. The only thing, of course, playing for head of states. I mean, usually you'd be only playing something very, let's say, instead of playing a full concerto or playing a full recital, you'd be playing only a little snippet of something. You know, um, it was actually quite interesting also because back in 2018, I believe that was when the G7 was held in Charlevoix in Canada. And I was one of the performers that was actually selected to perform for the heads of state there. Um, and, and again, it would be like a little snippet of something like a sort of a, um, a kind of a, a cut version of a piece or something. So of course, I mean, it would be a, a short snippet, a short taste of whatever it was. Every other act also would be like, there was a barbershop quartet. There was members of Cirque du Soleil who were there, you know, they would all be performing very short acts, but at the same time though, the end goal is the same, whether it is a full recital or whether it's a snippet of something you do want to, in a way, still, um, make that communication clear, like that, you know, to be able to transmit the same kind of, uh, emotional impulses, the kind of messages that you want. So, yeah. Yeah. And these recitals from all these different areas, of course, would also inform your entire career, but one stands out in particular. Carnegie Hall. What was that moment like when you got the call to perform there? And what was that moment like when you stepped on 
to that historic stage in New York. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a really what a memory. In a way, it was sort of the, the background behind it was because I was, you know, I, I premiered this new piece by John Rutter. John Rutter, of course, being like an English choral composer, was very, I didn't actually, I wasn't aware of how beloved, beloved he was like among choral circles um, around the English speaking world. But I mean, just to have someone like that to write a piece and then for me to pre pre premiere it uh, during the Menuhin competition in 2016, which was the centenary of Menuhin, so therefore there was a big celebration. And there was a, there, there was a, we were doing it in London Temple Church, and then we started bringing it around in many other places, just to give you the background behind how we got to Carnegie in the end as well. Um, so, and of course, then we brought the piece to Carnegie, and the idea of that, I think, was very, there's something about that hall that, just because of the, the historical associations with that hall and, and who's played there and the significance of, in the culture and all that stuff, you know, of Carnegie that sort of imparts its own aura, its own, you know, it makes, it has its own effect on you more than any other hall. Um, I, I just remember sort of backstage how nervous I was actually, you know, um, even going on stage to rehearse, like in certain auditorium, the main hall, how nerve wracking it was to stand there and feel as if like Heifetz's ghost or Horowitz's ghost is there watching you, you know, like that, like that, that, that feeling is a little, you know, um, I just remember feeling like that. I was like, all these, all these people who I've looked up to, who I've watched videos of, let's say growing up, it's like, that was the hall in, in the DVD in which I saw them perform, you know? And, uh, and, and of course, yeah. So I was, I was uh, pissing myself. A little bit but you know like it was in the end of the day though i mean it's it gave so much it gave, it gave so much musical inspiration as well it wasn't like as if it wasn't the sense of like oh they performed there and therefore i have to live up to that rather actually i feel like their spirits enrich in like are there like they, they enrich me somehow it's like they, they they impart this kind of confidence this kind of encouragement Almost and, like a Genki and, Dama, like a spirit bomb almost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Um, but to the point where it's like, you, you just then, you go on stage and you let, you basically let the music happen. You know, you don't really make the music happen, but you just let it happen. And I think in that sense, it was quite, yeah, it was again, like a very pure moment, I guess. Once I got past all the nerve, like the leg shaking and all that stuff, you know, but like just to go there and just to have like a good time, you know, um, and in a sense, it's like, you don't, you, again, you don't realize, you don't realize the full extent of, let's say how much Carnegie means to you until let's say after the fact, you go backstage, you quit, you get off stage and then you see the posters, like Haifa's 1951, you know, or the Beatles or whatever, you know, it's like, then it dawns on you. It's like Carnegie is, 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 is this place that in the end, just inspires musical excellence, like inspires everyone to give their most. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. That place has so much historic significance and so much also minute details that a lot of people may not realize, but also adds to kind of that charm as well. Horowitz, as you mentioned, performed there quite often. There was one performance where he actually snapped a piano string in the middle of a that was Rachmaninoff's piano sonata number two. Number two, yeah. Oh, that was 
wow <laughs> and he just still kept going and that's the thing when you're a performer it doesn't matter what happens you just keep going until you know you just can't go anymore because that string is now ruining the performance because that whole thing just snapped in into uh into two actually funny enough i was talking with leonard gilbert a pianist who you performed with in the past he's actually now a lawyer a tax lawyer in downtown toronto he mentioned that one particular problem one potential problem rather is that the old Steinways at the time, the way how they strung the strings on each of the two of the forks and the little pins on either side, there was may maybe a little bit of, of leeway, a little bit of give, or a bit of, of a design flaw or design flaw in the engineering that caused it to be more susceptible to breaking. And then when you got a guy like Horowitz, who has frankly a quite unorthodox technique, he had usually flat fingers as he played whereas normally the correct technique is to play with uh with fingertips like like this he played you would, you would see his hands like this right but he would still play with such clarity even well into his 80s and with such ferocity and power it's it, again he snaps strings but he's even then he's still able outside of the snapping string incident he's still able to convey He's able to perform pieces in a way that even I don't even hear other pianists perform even to that extent. Like going back to piano sonata number two, his difference between fortissimo and pianissimo is so stark. I have yet to hear another pianist reach that stark difference. Like it's it's literally he makes it from a factor of five to a factor of five hundred. It's incredible. It's absolutely amazing it's so magical to even as a pianist myself having heard that and seen that it's just like wow that it's so magical and that's that's the beauty of carnegie hall and what it brings out of each performer yeah absolutely it's funny that you mentioned because you know like those performances of rock i was actually listening to it a few days ago you know that string that string break performance specifically and it's like the atmosphere you can only imagine like the kind of atmosphere that that it imparts but also like yeah, it's just you know when you when you have when you when you when you think of the sound of Horowitz, the thunderous sound of Horowitz echoing, and you can still imagine like it's still there, it's still somewhere living there inside that hall, you know, and 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 that's that's quite a thought to behold in a way, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's true. Horowitz was was a was an individual in the fullest sense, you know? And in a sense, I would say pianists like him would just be as much an inspiration for, let's say, phrasing and for tone color as other violinists or even other instrumentalists for me. So in a way, it's nice that you mentioned Horowitz because also like <laughs> one of my favorite, favorite performers of all time. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. His name is still a well-respected name even long after his, his death decades after his death he was pretty much one of the last greats of the very of the pre-1950s 1960s era that was just sort of this before then pianists were sort of just this otherworldly maybe it could be down in nostalgia or some kind of other factor more that has nothing to do with their actual technique but still like their technique is still and their musicality their ability to evoke emotions un 
describable emotions even in other people is seldom seen nowadays. Not to say that nowadays is bad. I mean, there are still great performances now, but it's seldom seen that 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 old guard has been long past. But that's why it's great to have recordings of people like Horowitz because we get to see a bit of that glimpse as well. And even in the violin world, I can I can imagine with people like Yehudi Menuhin himself and other great violinists at the time, it's that name just transcends for as long as classical music is around and still being played, that name still transcends throughout time. Yeah, no, I, I actually, in a way, it's nice that you bring up someone like Horowitz because it's, you know, it kind of brings up the question of what, what just the sheer, sort of the sheer intensity and grandeur of one personality can do, not just to like, to become the, the monumental musician that he is, but also to then naturally just as consequence play a role in bringing um, music, let's say, to the masses. You know, creating, let's say, this this fervor around piano playing during the time that he was playing. You know, not just in let's say specific circles, but more also in the in the more general milieu. I think that's the idea that <clears throat> that you know, sort of a personality that 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 is that concentrated and that unique can do that. For me, I think it's sort of, it's 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 a it's something I. I think it's a very noble idea to go by, you know, for for classical musicians and also for like let's say how even going into the to, the question of let's say how, classical music fits into the world going forward, from nowadays. It's like just because of course I think. You know somehow the mentality has shifted a little bit in the sense that I think these days it, there's more of an expectation to, to, um, to, to let's say be, be humble or to, to be in service of the music, which is of course a most desirable uh, mentality when it comes to let's say interpreting a score, respecting a score. But I think also like the fact that the fact that the 20th century musicians had a sort of a a different way of going about it in the sense that they they were just personalities to become to begin with and they they went fully on their convictions you know only then then for example how Horowitz could then develop the personality that he is and not only a sound that we can recognize in a few seconds or even less than that to know that it's him but also still to create performances that get imprinted in people's minds and people's hearts for, for a very long time to come. I think that whole idea, I think, is something, I think that um, uh, even, you know, in a, also going even further, like in the case of Horowitz and many others in the 20th century, that they played many different roles, not just of a performer, but also of a of an arranger, as a, even a composer, you know, like these sort of things, to be full, full-bodied musical personalities. I think that's something, Still, for me, I mean, I, I I try and aspire to like that's something that would guide, would guide how I would go forward, you know, in let's say my musical path, what areas to continue to to consider or to develop, you know. I think that's, but of course I'm biased. I mean, I I, I grew up, I guess, just like you, you know, grew up on, on tapes of the 20th century greats, you know. But I think that 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 aspect, just, you know, the ability for 
sheer personality to not only um, bring life to the the comp like to bring life to the pieces that you play, but also to spread it around to be a communicator. You know, I think that's a that's a really great idea to latch on to. You know, um, that it all comes from in a way it's, a, it's an external reflection of your conviction. And for the idea to just to not inhibit that at all, just to let it out. So I think that's something that's, I would say is quite valuable uh, these days. Um, and something that you can balance with, I guess, the current, uh, also the need, let's say, to, to the classical musicians, the, the role that they take on as well as ambassadors, as, let's say, people who, as, as, as ambassadors of our art, you know, I think that's someone like Horowitz is a great example. Yeah. yeah. And one of the reasons why Horowitz also is such a great ambassador in the sense that, that you've described him is going back to his performances, he was able to guide the audience's emotions without forcing them to feel a certain way. And the biggest example of that is he does not have any exaggerated movements. His body moves along, but not to the extent where he's being a showman about it. All of his power, all of his sentimentality, all of his sorrow, all of his excitement, grandeur, all of that is shown in his fingers. All of it. And the way how he expresses that through his performance, the way how he's able to, again, from a basic level, the dynamic contrast to the advanced levels of playing a musical phrase, making that interlock with another one in a thematic sense, and making that logical but also at the same time playing it in a way that's unplayed before, unlike anyone who's who has come before him and even after him who has played that specific phrase. And being able to play both a conventional and unconventional way in a way that's able to translate through the piano towards the audience, that is something that is greatly, greatly, greatly difficult to master for any musician of any level even for the highest levels. He is able to maintain the momentum of the piece, of whatever he's playing, and he doesn't have to go presto. He just has to go just even largo, or maybe larghetto. Yet, he's still able to dial it from 0 to 100 almost immediately. And you see that again in the Rachmaninoff Piano Sonata number 2, with his second movement and his third movement in particular. My goodness, just listening to that and even comparing it to other performances, and don't get me wrong, those other performances are also really good, really amazing, but just hearing it, you just feel it. You just feel so, so different. You're just instantly mesmerized. And even in today's days with YouTube, being able to go jump forwards and backwards in a performance within seconds, maybe even within one second, you just you, f you feel it. You really do. Like, if you're really paying attention, man, it's it just, you're able to feel it immediately. And that's something that is 
I'm trying to convey in a way for the non-trained audience, for those in the audience who aren't necessarily as familiar with the world of classical music. I'm trying to I'm trying to explain it to them. It's really difficult to do it though without actually playing, you know, the performance itself. It, it's so it's so difficult. But that's what's so fascinating about it. You can't even describe it with words. Where me, where words end, music begins. That's the yeah, sort of absolutely. yeah. That's the sort of predicament that we find. It, it's a beautiful predicament. Yeah, in a, in a sense, it's sort of like the fact that it's beyond words makes it very hard to explain with words in a way. Um, but in a sense, it's sort of in the end, I guess, performance is there to be felt, not necessarily need to be. You know, you don't need to really understand it first as if to feel it first. I think that's the the main thing. The um, but it's great. It's great that actually that that you mentioned sort of Horowitz's economy of movement. I think for me, like just the immense dynamic range and colors that he's able to produce, he's able to produce in such a way that's incredibly efficient and incredibly noble as well. I think that's, in a sense, it's sort of the absence again, as you as you mentioned, of of external superficialities of showmanship of that sense, unnecessary movements, movements that's just, let's say, for the sake of movement. Um, I think that the lack of that, I think, is as much as it seems, you know, uneventful at first, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a sign of nobility, it's a sign of poise, it's a sign of elegance, and it's a sign of sincerity, I think, um, so that you know sort of to what extent something can be done with the least amount of effort possible or the least amount of movement, that immediately imparts a feeling of sincerity, of honesty. And that's something about Horowitz in that, for sure, I mean, his sound was incredibly, like, um, in addition to, to colorful and to, you know, to deep and to just all-encompassing, but it was also incredibly bombastic and incredibly large and grand. But at the same time, it's like, in the end of the day, it's you think about character, not virtuosity. Virtuosity becomes like a byproduct. You know, when you think about what, what, what pure is impressive, let's say speed-wise or technique-wise and stuff like that, that's not, that becomes not the main focus, but the main focus becomes character, becomes being able to bring out the character of each piece, color, to be able to almost give the illusion of a singing voice. All this stuff even a violinist can learn from, from a pianist, you know. And of course from voices, from the actual voice itself, for sure from singers. But I think something like, um, it's interesting how we're talking about Horowitz because it's great. I mean, I love, this is a, you know, it's, it's great to talk about Horowitz because he really was someone who both spoke and sang playing his instrument. And that's something that actually all violinists can work, can, can learn from, I find. Um, but yeah, in the end, I think it's, it's, it's that emphasis of character over virtuosity. And the fact that in the end for the listener, that it is something just to be felt first to go with your gut feeling, to go with the initial responses that you have towards the music. There's no need to, let's say, to, to, or to, to be worried about, let's say, understanding what you are making, making sense necessarily of what you're hearing, but just to feel it. And I think that's the main appeal. I guess that's the main thing that a lot of people can take out of, let's say, a, a classical experience, maybe for the first time. It's just there to be perceived and it's just there to be felt. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a fascinating way how you talked about character 
I mean, before virtuosity and even being far more important than virtuosity, that's a great way of, of putting it because even in some marketing for some classical musicians, not all the time, just sometimes. And, you know, it's not meant to be a slight or, you know, to bash them. I, I get it, you know, where they're coming from. They focus a lot on virtuosity, but they don't really focus as much on the character, right? I'm not saying they don't focus on the character. I'm just saying that sometimes the virtuosity kind of takes like a 60, 40 or 60% of the attention over a character, which becomes a little problematic because then it kind of, well, it it, 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 I don't want to say it cheapens it. It doesn't cheapen it, but it just kind of doesn't make it. It makes it a little bit uh, disingenuous, so to speak. You know, so it, it's not really a problem. It's like a, a big problem, but it, it's just there. It's something that you can, it's like a minor flaw that, that they could probably tweak a little bit. And it doesn't happen all the time, but that's something that I've noticed once in a while whenever I see some concerts being marketed uh, here in Canada having lived here and been seeing more, most concerts here in Canada, the ability to feel, you know, and the ability of not having to, you don't have to understand it, but being able to feel it. It's funny because actually on a semi-related note, I came out of watching Tenet, the movie Tenet, you know, with Christopher Nolan. And that's one of the things he talked about in his movie. You don't have to understand everything that's happening in Tenet. You just have to feel it, Right. That's, and interestingly enough, at least in that movie, and I think it's also transferable even in the classical music, sometimes you understand it by feeling it, right? So, you know, not to spoil anything in Tenet, although I think it's actually kind of impossible to spoil Tenet, given just how the how non-linear the entire story is. The ability to, you know, to, to, under, to feel the time, the timeline, traverse and how to invert yourself and act in a palindromic way and going backwards in time and inverting yourself and then reinverting and then conducting some kind of a temporal pincer movement or a palindromic movement, so to speak, with yourself and with your other inverted versions and traversing a paradox, making a paradox make sense. That's something, being able to feel that helps you to understand it. That's at least how I did when I first watched that movie. And that's the same thing here in in classical music with really many much of the repertoire because sometimes sometimes you don't have access to the philosophy or the written letters or the written treatises of the composers and even if you do maybe it doesn't go that deep into that particular piece but you kind of interpret it and you feel it and then you you understand it by, by feeling it and playing it practicing it of course and performing it eventually at least from my own personal experience that sort of thing allows you to understand it and then it, and that's when you're able to explain it with words to other people who are trying to understand it at, at least that that's how i find it it's a beautiful coincidence actually since you mentioned it that way it's a beautiful coincidence that i think you and i have experienced in our own our own uh, our own lives you of course way more than i could ever hope to uh to experience of course um uh, but I, I that's that's the fascinating part about it yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah, so it's there, there's something about it that uh, yeah, something that I feel like there's always going to be some sort of inherent understanding. Let's say when when you do construct, let's say a musical phrase in a certain way, 
or that you play a sound and you play with a certain intention in context with other sounds that and especially with interesting with with violin of course with, with piano it's also you know it's it's, it's slightly but with violin because there is the direct association with let's say the human voice but not just in like a singing not not just in a singing context but also let's say the kind of no, the kind of noises and the kind of gestures vocal gestures that we do just to communicate in real life when we speak not only even when we speak but even like the sounds that come out where even let's say we're talking over zoom or we're talking over telephone that there's a there's the ability to discern emotion like what the other person is feeling at that particular moment because there are certain emotional markers in the in 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 the sound that we make with our voices that immediately let's say are universally comprehensible like oh that that person is feeling this way or that way at this particular point and i feel like there's a very interesting correlation with the violin that could happen you know in a sense that like um which is interesting for me because personally i find that's actually something that is sort of like the high goal in a way um for me personally is to get let's say to an increasing increasing resolution of sound so that you actually get to let's say um the kind of resolution to where you can perceive the sound as if you're perceiving a human voice and that little details of sound were actually um intended all those little details were were there in order to let's say support the color or the kind of phrasing or the kind of impact that you're trying to convey you know and in that sense i think it's when when it when it does become let's say that detailed or that complex it also becomes simple because in the same way that let's say it becomes more simple because when we hear someone speak we can then discern their emotional state in the same way it's sort of like it's a weird thing but i feel like let's say if we are able to play a phrase in such a way with such with such detail and with such intention i just feel like there's always going to be a, some sort of universal understanding you know and everyone's going to react to it differently you know but i think that it's 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 going to hit in a kind of in a universal way and so uh, in that sense it's really like that's that's really all it is you know it's something that 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 makes an, an emotional impression on you um and that itself is valuable that itself is actually what is the currency here in a way you know much more than people might think um that the, the fact that let's say you're able to uh you're just able to to feel things let's say otherwise that you would be have to spoken to at length let's say in a particular way um even strong emotions but then the fact that it's music um that is able to let's say even raw even very direct gestures of emotion visceral emotions can be made into something that is just inherently more well made into art basically and that's a beautiful idea yeah yeah that's also transferable into a non-musical and non-artistic sphere as well speaking from a as a lawyer we see this even in the courts you know we we see this even in the courts when COVID first hit and everything was moved on to zoom it was difficult not only because we had to move things from an administrative part but also from a human perspective we lost a lot of those nuances over zoom right 
it's the it's better than nothing of course it's probably the best thing aside from an in-person meeting or in-person court appearance but having that interpersonal kind of connection and being able to pick up on those nuances that's important for resolving a case in law and especially in litigation types of practice areas like family law or criminal law or civil litigation these are fundamental to determining whether you can settle this case right now or you'll have to go to trial and that could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially for for clients and on top of that that's could also cost many more months or even many more years of suffering for a lot of these clients so having that kind of connection being able to be sympathetic and empathetic towards these emotions and having that access is so important not only from a personal standpoint but also from a structural standpoint whatever we're doing here in law and again i find that that parallel so so fascinating and important because that's literally what i mean that's also kind of my my daily work on a, on a monday to friday basis yeah no i think in the same way that like these little details that you sense can can make a huge impact in the case that you're working on you know i think that in the same way that little musical nuances and little details do can and do have meaning you know if you so want them to and in that sense i think it's yeah it's it's a very interesting parallel actually yeah yeah and to be able to have these kinds of sensitivities these these abilities of recognizing emotion recognizing musicality this all comes down to practice you know it, it for everyone out there everybody can agree that practice is extremely it is the most important thing to do in any discipline especially in music so on your youtube channel and for those of you who don't know please subscribe to kirsten young on youtube on his youtube channel you you spoke about a very specific practice method that's the 10 15 20 method so to briefly explain it first practice for 10 minutes only 10 quality moments 10 quality minutes rather then put down the fiddle for 10 minutes and then mentally focus on the music while relaxing so you image train basically like, like frieza basically then you practice 15 minutes of fully focused high intensity practice then put it down for five then practice for 20 so on and so forth this is what you call incremental practice for about an hour and you also talk about the true question of how many times you should practice in a day specifically how many sessions of reasonable length separated by carefully allotted breaks away from the instrument how did you come across the 10 15 20 formula of practice and why are breaks so important for practice yeah no i mean that's uh i think i i think partly it was travel based you know because in travel when you're traveling for concerts and when you're jumping between place to place airports to airports you don't necessarily have as much time to work obviously you don't have as much time as you would, well, would like to practice and so you end up making use of let's say less time and making the most out of it i think that was the basis for that but also just being lazy <laughs> you know i think that was equally like 
whether whether it's you know that like that's just the nature of it sometimes you would work for 10 minutes and then you would kind of like go back and on the other hand though there is this idea of refreshing you know somehow letting whatever internal processes make their difference or take their course even when you're not with the instrument like in a, in a sense i find that it's like to be able to refresh yourself mentally in order to be a sponge in order to better internalize what you practice if you do that consistently imagine with those refreshing breaks let's say you know how much more you can be first of all fresh but also um if you if you take into account also like in my experience at least every time you you take up the instrument again something is different whether you play for five minutes five intense minutes or whether you play for 25 minutes or whether you play for two and a half hours straight you know but every time you take a break after that and you come back something's different something's immediately like internalized something that has added to your arsenal something that is there that wasn't there before you know and so in that sense it's like why not why do you even have to if that's the case then why do you actually have to practice four hours in a row you know and let your brain get tired and all that stuff right and so this whole idea came out of that it was like just asking me the question like in order to get that process of input then let it absorb input then let it absorb and then you build on top of that it's like it, it just became it seemed it seemed to me like quite an efficient way to go about it yeah and and also very compatible with um sometimes like if you do travel or sometimes when you don't you don't get the well, you don't play for a few days and you get back into shape you know it's also it's a great way to do it because it's like um you're constantly allowing yourself to not get worn down by the process it's like you're just you're, you're constantly working in in periods of time that allow you to be at your most perceptive your most involved and then just as you are, let's say, not or losing concentration, then you take then you take a break and you regain that concentration. I think that's a great idea. In a way. Yeah. yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned the importance of staying refreshed because that's a lesson that I think even non-musicians can take in their own personal life. Being able to work and understand where your best productivity moments are moments of the day are and then refreshing that constantly that allows for more productivity and also allows you for also a healthier mindset as well if you're just grinding away and grinding away you're, and you don't, you don't give any breaks you won't learn much you actually start getting weaker and also less susceptible um less able to to absorb things like a sponge right so nailing that quality and quantity of practice is really, and I think I, I think the 10 to 15, 20 formula practice is really good because of, the, of that ability to refresh. And while you practice, how do you determine the proper way of approaching specific musical phrases in a specific piece? And how do you determine the best way to make these phrases make sense? And it's probably great if you can give like a musical example a passage from your repertoire to do that so how do you determine like the best logical way to connect all these different phrases 
it's a very good and very personal question in a way because it's it's i think everyone again phrasing is something that is you can recognize good or even great phrasing but you can't necessarily describe why or describe how you know it's one of those things that it's it's almost like it's almost um primal in the sense that like you know there's something that that this reaches a level of complexity that becomes simple and becomes that feels natural in a sense that like every single phrase has a life or has a birth has a life and has a, let's say a decay or a death or you know there's a there's a natural life cycle going there i find that actually approaching it maybe from a from a general perspective almost imagining let's say if there was a field of gravity underneath the notes and what let's say what purpose the notes in relation to each other play what purpose do they play whether to bring us forward you know whether to create let's say a space whether to let's say let's say become more viscous create a little bit more density in the air around you you know like to to in a way visualize like that um for me just in terms of like feeling there's a that in every phrase there's a push and pull under every note there's a push and pull and to feel as if like okay that if you do feel this feel of gravity underneath it's like and you and you start to decipher okay like what you start to work inwards then it's like you work general first then you work details like okay what in order to create that feeling of let's say the phrase landing in the way that i want what purpose does each note play you know and then you can start thinking about timing and then you can start thinking about pacing and all these things because the way you time it whether let's say if you have like a slight um you know like if within let's say the rhythmic flexibility of of course we are afforded as relatively as classical musicians you know there are ways in which you can alter that sense of that push and pull underneath right there's like you can pull us forward you can pull us back or you can be something suspended you know like in a way it's useful even just to work in these more simplistic terms you know uh when doing phrasing but i would say other than that it's like it's very it's uh yeah i mean the, the, that would be the the degree to which i would try and explain to myself what's happening but then it's like then you just sort of you the end goal is to try and get something to sound as natural as possible so it has a lot to do with proportion as well so let's say going back to someone like horowitz even if he if he did have let's say a huge dynamic range and even more contrast within a phrase than let's say most pianists you know everything was considered like in a sense there was proportion that was the sense of proportion was was so well considered in a sense that it was not only in a horizontal way pacing how that how that combined with dynamics you know but even if if you were able to perceive that the dynamic range was great that the contrast within was so vivid that you wouldn't necessarily go out of it of, of go out of a phrase thinking oh i just ate too much chocolate cake or i just oh i was only like drinking diet water you know <laughs> or like or like eating sugar you know like th those kind of feelings there would be something really well consolidated like there's something that that was that just that felt natural in the sense that you could see it from many different angles and it just 
lands naturally, like the way that it does. And I think with, with, uh, that's, that's in a way the end goal. So in a sense, just like, even if you have the, yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to go into examples, but even just maybe, you know, taking the, taking the beginning of like how Horowitz would play the, the first Chopin ballad, you know, like the very, the very opening pacing wise, how to create, how to sow doubt, how to create suspense, you know, how to maintain a flow and yet at the same time almost bring us forward, let's say rather cautiously because we don't know exactly where we are yet, you know, like all those, that kind of thing. When it, when it comes to, when it comes to working phrasing, it's like you, you, you work with certain possibilities first of timing, let's say you combine it with, with, uh, with color, with dynamics and stuff. And you always try and question yourself whether that's too much, like in relation to what you're trying to accomplish, whether that's too much or whether let's say something was a little out of place within the phrase. And then you work backwards like that. And that's actually also how you develop restraint, which is an incredibly important quality when making music. It's like, because there's always, you know, for even like person, personal selfish reasons, you can go overboard because it feels good feels good to, let's say, indulge in a fortissimo, you know, or to indulge in something that's just bombastic and that makes you feel as if, like, it, it, it fulfills what your adrenaline asks for. But at the same time, restraint is there. I mean, it's important because you still want everything proportions, proportionally, everything to to feel as if it was meant to be and not to be, let's say, out of place, you see. Something that, that, that happens to, and then you feel like, okay, but where was that? Let's say in the overall context of things. Um, so that's a little bit of, I guess, my thought, my thought process, um, to phrasing, because otherwise it's, it's an art that's very hard to explain as you, you know, as you, as you've mentioned before, like, it's just something that's very, it's very difficult to combine the elements together, but it just comes from experience in a way it's like the more you listen to um like imagine if you're really convinced by the delivery of speech you know you're really convinced by the diction but the, the sincerity by which they, they they delivered that speech you know there are markers for that sincerity there are things in that speech there are qualities let's say within the, the, the diction and all that stuff that make you feel as if it was sincere you know um, and that I think has to do with proportion as well, has to do with the balance of, you know, the balance of, of, of elements. Um, and I think the same, very much the same thing with musical phrasing. Yeah, that's an excellent explanation of it. That's, I think, the best explanation that I've ever heard from anywhere, honestly. And I think the audience would, or I hope the audience would be very grateful for, for that, because that is a very, very good primer into what the musical mind goes into phrasing. I'm glad you brought up the, the analogy of diction in speech. Myself working also, you know, my, my, my other hobbies as a sports announcer, that's one of the things that we do as well, even in the world of announcing. So each sport that we do has a different tempo. Literally, and, and the way how I approach an announcing is the exact same way how I approach a musical performance. What's the sport? What's the game? What are the two teams if they're 
the art two teams playing? What are the athletes who are competing are, are doing? What are their stories up to that point? And along with all the preparation that I do with the information, with the research, all the stats and whatnot, there's also the big picture as well. And how are you able to convey that story in literally three or four minutes, depending on your pregame, your pregame show, or your halftime show, or your postgame show? How are you able to convey that story? And then especially during each play, how do you approach each play? And especially in sports like hockey and basketball, which are very fast-paced, and there's always a play happening at every second of time, and every almost every millisecond of time. As an announcer, I have to be proportionate as to what's going on. Not every play is going to be a game-winning play. Not every play is going to be a goal scored. Not every play is going to lead to a success- successful play or successful pass or whatever. So being able to leverage that tempo and to leverage that dynamic range and that phrasing literally in a literal sense for with with word phrasing is really important especially when you can only have about two to four words per action to describe per action because if you go too long into it if you ramble you're behind so that kind of explanation is so so good because it's it's also a great analogy even in sports announcing because and that's why great sports announcers and sportscasters have stayed for so long at the levels that they that they do because they are able to master that even when they're announcing other things and announcing sport. And when you brought up the Ballade number 1 by Chopin, as someone who has performed that in the past numerous times, it's a great example because it starts, well, it says it's in G minor, but it doesn't start in on G. So that sense of doubt, even from a notation perspective, is already very, very apparent let alone that slow inching, that slow storytelling that comes from that. Even the way how I was taught that piece, it's like every other piece, you have to tell a story. But here, here it's almost like, my interpretation of it, it's almost like a war story almost, right? That's explained in about seven to 10 minutes, depending on how long the performance takes. So being able to unite all these different passages and being able to have a question and answer, a conversation, a musical conversation between the different voices in each line, in each bar. That's something that's so difficult. It's easy to learn in some aspect, but it's also so difficult to master. Very, very difficult to master. And I think every musician, regardless of, of age, regardless of when they perform, regardless of level, I think that's a constant learning experience that each and every musician each and every one of us has to go through when we're doing that and yeah i think that's again that that was a great explanation of that thanks no it's also because in a way like yeah it's true i think that's the ultimate learning curve like almost forever learning curve um is phrasing i think that's the real difficulty but also where the real substance of music making is is the ability to 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 phrase as if you were speaking or singing in such a way that was comprehensible as if it was words you know as if it was and um yeah i think that's that's the ultimate pursuit that's the most noble pursuit because by phrasing also it's a way to also alter the state of time or to alter this 
you know, to, to, to alter that even the state that you're in, you know, like the gravity, like the viscosity of the air, where you are, you know, all that stuff. I think the ability to manipulate, you have the, the ability to manipulate that, you know, in subtle ways that serve to create the kind of atmosphere that you, that you want to create. And I think that's, there's something to, there's a way to do that that is so incredibly like noble, you know, as you look at someone again, like the Horowitzes and you know, the Heifuses and, and all those, like, again, speaking as someone who, who will first always refer to 20th century people because I grew up with them. But I mean, you know, there's a lot these, these days as well that, you know, but I mean, just like when you look at great musicians who are able to do that, it comes, it's as if it was, as if they were speaking, you know, and I think there is an unspoken understanding there as well among the audience. I'm sure that they can feel it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They, they feel it. And sometimes they're also vocal about it as well. So yeah, it's very, it's very much there. That feeling is definitely going to be there in a good performance. So as you're preparing for a piece, to what extent do you use the original composer's written philosophy in your performance of the piece? And in general, what to what extent do you incorporate their, uh, your musical philosophy in such a performance? How do you find the balance between that? Or do you have an entirely different approach to what I just described? Well, it's interesting because you know, in violin, you deal with, a, with, a, with a, in a way, a very large variety of different approaches, depending on, let's say, what kind of, you know, what kind of period of music that you're dealing with, or, you know, like also the question of, for example, something physical, Baroque bow versus normal bow, gut strings versus synthetic modern strings, or Baroque setup violin versus modern violin, all these things. And of course, you know, that's a very literal example of going, trying to go to the source, to the, to the kind of the treatises and all that stuff is that people by, by going back to the tools in which Baroque composers like Bach and Telemann and, and Vivaldi, you know, the way they, 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 um, the, the instruments with they envision their pieces, you know, it's like you get to a, to an understanding of articulation of the lightness of the music, perhaps of what kind of attitude general attitude to approach it with. I think that's very important. Um, I think there's, it's, it's funny when, when there's still cases, I guess, of, of people who, who insist on approaching, you know, Baroque music in a romantic manner, or, you know, let's say like the, just because maybe it's the matter that they grew up with. But I think that just open-mindedness, I think is a, is a very, uh, it's, it's a quality that can, that can take you a long way. Um, even if, let's say, if you don't end up, it's like, you don't necessarily have to switch to Baroque bow every single time you play Bach, you know, but at the same time, it's like that knowledge that is imparted on you by, first of all, playing a Baroque bow, um, and then reading, let's say like about, let's say the kind of sensibilities that they had back in the day when, uh, when, uh, you know, when those, those tools were the standard, you know, like what kind of, exp what, what kind of articulation to be had and all that stuff, that stuff that you can always bring back into your approach, you know? Um, however, I think that again, it's like that balance is an interesting question because it, it goes back to, again, going, always going back to Horowitz, I find, you know, like, because you know, Horowitz being such an individual, um, an individual personality and all that, but at the same time was, was, you know, approaching 
you could you could never say that Horowitz was indulgent, you know, in the sense that he was let's say you get the sense that he was using music for another for his own selfish reasons or for kind of thing. It was always let's say trying to bring it out. I think that's in a way I think it's important to to um, to find yourself within the music, like to find from whatever part of yourself the inspiration for that music comes. What side of you does that music bring out of you? You know, I think like those those are those are interesting questions to be to be posed, um, and that feeling in a way. I think like you know, whenever I'm asked how to first approach a piece that you're not uh, that you're not familiar with or with, whether it's a new piece, that feeling goes a bit like the initial reactions toward a piece, the initial emotional markers you have the feelings that you have, let's say, when you first read a score, or when you first listen to something, like those are valuable in a sense that like that actually can already point you in a certain expressive dimension. Um, but and also even in, let's say, more nerdy, you know, specific considerations as well, like, for example, um, stylistic things like articulation or vibrato and all this stuff, you know, um, I think that that can go a long way, that feeling. Like just to go with your initial, um, what initial reactions you have, you know, and not to forget that. Even as if you're, even even when you're still learning about, let's say, other approaches or when you're learning about, let's say, uh, getting experience from different viewpoints, but not to lose that. Yeah, yeah. Being able to maintain your own identity and having to follow your, your instinct and to follow that, that feeling is such an important and crucial aspect of being a musician. And even talking, you talked about the, the physical, the, even the physical aspects about you know, bowing in, in the Baroque bowing or modern techniques. There's a similar thing also in, in piano as well with how classical era pianism compared to modern era pianism. So as you know, the structure, the way how the piano was constructed has evolved greatly over the last 300 to 400 years or so. We started out with the harpsichord and the clavichord and other similarly plucked, uh, plucked percussive instru instruments. It wasn't until around the mid, early to mid 1700s when the first pianos came on the stage. J.S. Bach was able to see some of these new pianos as in his late years, his late years before he passed away, passed away rather, he saw just the potential of that. And his sons, one of his sons, C.B.E. Bach, would write a very crucial essay on the art of playing keyboard instruments. And it's literally entitled that, actually. It's the translation from the original German. And even the way how they number the fingering for the uh for each piece back in the classical era is actually somewhat different from how modern fingering numbers are and frankly i think the modern methods are better because it allows for easier performances of that passage and it allows for even a much more expansive horizon of pianism as a whole as we would see with liszt and other similar piano virtuosos at the time, they were able to push the boundary of pianism to such an extent, 
you know, of course, building off of the classical era philosophy, but they were also able to build on that and expand and even replace some of the not so good elements of previous era pianism. And that kind of mechanic changed the history of pianism. And even the tuning methods are also very crucial. Leonard Gilbert, in a conversation that I had with him in the past, mentioned in one of his papers that even the way how we tune the piano is different from how we did back in the past. So nowadays we have tempered tuning, right? So every tone is just so ever so out of tune. But when you play them all together, it's all mellow, it's all great, it matches any scale. But back in the old days, they tuned the piano to a specific scale or a specific key, I should say. So for that particular key, let's say let's use C major, for example, truly perfect, truly in tune, perfect for C major. But if you were to play other scales, that's when you started seeing some of the differences. So even that kind of tuning method and even the to go even more technical today, most places use the A440 concert pitch standard. And that's almost universal across most places around the world. But there's also A432 and other pitches, which are just ever so slightly under the A440 standard. But there's a very noticeable difference. You and I both having perfect pitch, we would definitely hear that difference because it changes that ever so slight difference in hertz. That difference of about eight hertz changes everything about the tone of the piece. It sounds a lot more mellower or brighter, depending on what it is. And the emotions that it expresses with that ever so slight tweak in sound frequency and that tuning frequency frequency rather does wonders. It, it changes everything about our performance. So that that mechanic even influences the philosophy that comes out of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's 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 funny to to think of all the considerations that we have, you know, uh, that can influence, let's say, the impression of what's coming out, you know, tuning. I mean, for us, even it's, it's something that we deal with, we have to deal with, whether it's not even just one type of tuning, but before that, like even whether we can play in tune or not, you know, because that's for violin, that's, that's, that's always a, a constant challenge, but it's, it's interesting, like just the, um, the amount of considerations that there are, you know, and also like the question also as, as we, as we, let's say, play pieces that were written by composers in the past and how they, let's say, are played today. And also what the idea, let's say, if, if composers were alive today, would they be making use of, let's say, how, or how would they're making use of, let's say, current trends or current tools or current ways of doing about things, fingerings and stuff like that. How would that continue to evolve and how would that actually, you know, and what does that speak for us actually um, as methods continue to evolve? How do we continue to adapt that or how does that affect our way of interpreting pieces going forward? And is there such thing as an evolution of interpretation? Of course, because again, how we did things compared to 100 years ago is very, very different. You know, um, again, like even something as specific as fingering, but also just like the general sound that we look for and how does that continue to, and is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? You know, these things, it, it just shows like the amount of breadth that there is, you know, and all that can, that can create noticeable and meaningful differences in approach between, you know, different artists even, you know, and how we think about things. So I think that's, 
Um, yeah, it's something that keeps us on our toes, I think. Yeah, and the the another thing that also has really developed over the last couple of years is the even competitions have evolved in the sense that at least for the Chopin competition, there's now a period instrument competition. So because of the evolution, especially with piano, especially with how piano sounded with Chopin's original pianos, the Playel, if you played a piece on his original Playel pianos, very different sound from a modern piano. Very, very different sound. So now there's also a criteria as to what it would have sounded like, what's the best interpretation or the most accurate interpretation of a piece or a piece of repertoire on a period instrument. So from the piano perspective, very much, I think the answer is yes. There has been a very, very deep and rich evolutionary history into how pieces are interpreted. And now some piano manufacturers, such as Busendorfer, are now actually increasing the range now. If you, if you saw the Bosendorfer, I forgot which, which number it was, but it was one of their larger concert grants. Now they're adding an extra octave, I would even want to say at the end. It's like, wow, that is... Uh, and when you hear it, it's like, wow, it's something else. And it's colored black. The white keys are colored black. But the thing is, no or almost no repertoire has been written for something like that. So it remains to be seen how modern composers will approach that. I mean, I'm instantly I'm thinking about people like Alma Deutscher. She composes more for the violin and also for, for operas, but also being versed in piano, I think she, I mean, if she does choose to use that sort of extra octave at the end, I, I, I really want to see how that could, how that's going to play out in terms of compositions, because that is going to be a fa uh, potentially a, f a fascinating thing. Some people, some musicians are like, eh, it's, it's kind of nothing. But who knows? You never know. I mean, yeah. we're, there's no, nothing in life is static, and classical music is no exception to that. So, yeah, who, who knows? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting, right? It's like, who was it? Lao Tzu, Lao Tzu said that, you know, like, nature never rushes, but yeah, everything is accomplished. You know, like how, how a lot of these things, I guess, you know, it's hard to imagine, or it's, it's funny to try and imagine, I guess, like, the, the places of innovations that would you know that they will take in the future and how long it will take but at the same time i think it's definitely going to happen you know that that composers are going to make use of that tools first of all are going to continue to evolve and that there's going to be new um even subtly new ways of doing things um and that there's going to be more of a breath i think it just shows one of those things that like within the classical music realm things are continuing to evolve like things are not stagnant Things one of the main events for that yeah. um and that to me is, is quite exciting yeah 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 and one thing that you've also done is back in 2011 when you had your fundraiser concert uh, the raising hope f with music fundraiser concert for the fukushima nuclear disaster you actually played the soprano saxophone in an improvisational performance so you showed your abilities in improvisation and also to a certain extent even in jazz theory and jazz performance so I'm curious as to what extent do you apply the musical approaches and philosophies of jazz in your performances nowadays? And to what extent do the classical and jazz approaches and philosophies and even theory intersect 
in your performances aside from just basic basic notation? Yeah, no, I think it's there's definitely like it's all one, or there can be a big continuum of things, and um, even in in just the attitude, I find like to approach every single classical performance as if you were playing the piece for the first time, or as if you were even you were playing it with the kind of spark with which you would discover a piece for the first time. I think that's that's one thing that I would you know the inspiration that you would have in the moment, trying to find the notes that you're going to play, or playing just what's at heart basically like in the middle of an improvisation. I think that's the same attitude that I would try and take away. Even when you're playing something like, for example, Tchaikovsky or Sibelius Concerto, things, standard things in the repertoire that you would play over and over again or play many times in your career, you know. Um, but to try and, like, in a sense, that's the main inspiration is to try and find something fresh every single time. And yet, I, not, not for the sake of finding something fresh, but just for the sake of, like, getting to the heart of the music, you know, in accordance to what your state is that day and but just letting almost the moment take you um i think so that kind of improvisatory attitude towards something that is written down you know um just because it's written down doesn't mean that it's undeserving of spark of of spark in the moment you know it's like in fact it's actually what is entombed there is like the spark with which the spark of inspiration with which the composers composed that piece with at the very beginning, what spurred them to, you know, it wasn't just for the sake of academic exercise that they would write these pieces, but it was because of, let's say, some internal need to do so and to try and capture that same energy when you're performing. I think that's that's definitely a, um, it's a, it's, it's, it's a cool thing. It's a cool thing. Um, and just in, in terms of also like, you know, getting, getting it, even if it's like basic, you know, whether it's um, getting, getting familiar with different scales, the blues scale or with other, other stuff like that, because in a way, I mean, for me, playing saxophone was just something that I, it was like a side project. It was something I dabbled in, but didn't sort of, you know, but at the same time, that was still like, it, it gave you, gave you inspiration in the sense that it would fill your ears with almost like, Un, unusual sounds, you know, different scales give you different colors and provide you also like another angle with which you can view something like that's already existing, like, you know, the notes that on the classical piece that you already know. Um, and to try and, because I think in order to, in, or, in order to, let's say, um, do justice to a piece, but in a way that seems fresh, or do it the way that hasn't been imagined before, that kind of thing, in the, in the same way that Horowitz did. The first thing that you would have is an incredibly powerful vision of what you want to happen. It's like that is, it doesn't come with excessive practice. It doesn't come with, it comes first of all from a vision right. from that. And, and I think the, the more that you have fueling that kind of reservoir of, you know, your palette, that is, the more that you have, whether from experiencing different colors, which is from different styles, different scales, different musical experiences, the more that you can actually conjure up something of that nature, I find. Yeah. 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 And that kind of experience, we even see this also in people like Bruce Lee, you know, in his own philosophy and his own, you know, martial arts prowess. Many, I mean, Many people actually look to him as the father of 
MMA in a way because he was able to pick pieces of which what worked best in different traditional martial arts and put them into one. Now, Jeet Kune Do itself is not exactly, you know, a fully comprehensive uh, martial art, but it was like the beginnings of something that would lead on to, you know, the philosophy of taking what's best from everything and taking from your own experience and putting it together. And that was what was so important in the world of martial arts. Same thing with music. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's important that some of the old elitist traditions of classical music that needs to be you know, torn down because if it doesn't work, if it doesn't add any genuine value to the performance itself or even to access the general access to these performances, then you're not doing anything good for classical music. You're actually hurting it in a long-term sense as well. And yeah, that, I, that's just my honest opinion about like the whole state of everything that's been going on. But it has been getting better from what I've seen, especially with YouTube. You know, with your YouTube channel and with guys like Two Set Violin and other musicians who have also had a YouTube or social media presence, it has been getting better. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's you know, there's a there's a, I think the whole the whole thing about accessibility and you know the sort of people's perception of being able to get into classical music is just being able to get into it, you know. There's really no barrier there in a sense. It's like what it is is what it is. And I think um, our role these days, like whether it's ambassadors like Tuset Violin in, in sort of an influencer sense, but also as musicians going out to bring music to the people without much without much of a without much expectation, really. It's just sort of like I'm sharing with you in a very simple manner what I'm doing. And that immediately I think is is a way is a, is a gateway into something into an, into a different world for many people as simple as that um and but yeah i mean going back to also your 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 previous point about just taking what works you know the whole thing about mma and all that stuff i mean that's definitely something that i that resonates with me very much it's like in a sense it's like you don't need to belong to any one tradition but just to create or to to even to combine the same, the best toolbox that you that you want, that serves your purpose best, you know, um, that's been a big marker of my philosophy of violin playing. I think for a number of years now, but I think it's um, it, it, in a way there's a, there's a certain amount of courage required to do that, because of course we learn we we we, we learn via tradition often. You know, in classical music, that's pretty much a big thing. But I think to go outside of that and to almost go outside the box and to question what you've learned, that takes a, a quite amount of courage, I find. But I think it's necessary. And I think you do find a lot of interesting energy these days, whether in something even like as, as, as specific as, say, the Baroque scene in France or in the Netherlands, you know, like like just people thinking up new methods or taking up you know what what is what is historically let's say informed but with a new energy with uh with an open mind i think going going at things with an open mind is quite yeah it's something courageous and needs to be done i mean as much as it's as much as also that there can be you can go overboard with it you know but at the same time i think it is there is a, there is a conversation to be had there um and in a direct way that it can also not only influence how 
music making evolves in the future, but also the way in which we, the, the artists, not only, let's say, people come to us, but we come to them as a way of sharing, right? Um, I think that's, it's, it's definitely a, a, become a very important role, I guess, for musicians these days. It certainly that has. Also, yeah. yeah, absolutely. It certainly has. And even revisiting past pieces in our own performance has also been something that has been a core experience for many of us as well as musicians. I, I mention this because, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like for myself, when I f first performed the uh, Franz Liszt's Après une lecture Dante Fantasia Quasi Sonata, or the, the Dante Sonata, back in my teenage years, and when I revisited it back in 2020 during the COVID-19 pandemic, my approach to it was very different from how I approached it in my teenage years, right? Aside from yeah. it being a technically difficult piece, musicality, musically-wise, since I've grown, since being in high school, now that at the time I was in law school and having to, you know, having, having an extra 10 or so years of experience, or, or or whatnot, my approach to it was different. So you had an even better example in the sense that, to remind our audience, you performed the Zaguna Weizen at the 2010 International Manuman Competition. You were 13 at the time. Well, in 2021, you once again performed the Zaguna, the Zaguna Weizen, this time with an ensemble instead of a full orchestra. So... To what extent has your approach to the Zaguna Weizen changed between 2010 and 2021? And in general, in your experience, to what extent has your approach to previous pieces that you performed in the past changed upon your revisiting of such pieces at a later point in your life? Yeah, that's a great question because specifically when it comes to Zaguna Weizen, something like that, you know, because it's what's well, meant to be gypsy music. It's meant to be it captures something quite primal in a way. Um, and of course, I mean, when I was 13, of course, I would still be, be thinking about expressing myself in a piece because in a way, those are the kind of pieces where you can be quite unrestrained. You know, you don't actually have much to consider. It's just sort of like pure emotion goes a long way, you know, kind of thing. Those, those are the kind of pieces. But I mean, there's something about like, for example, the element of sorrow, the element of nostalgia, maybe. The, the, the sense of longing that people, let's say, wanderers may feel, you know, wandering around, never really having a permanent, you know, permanent uh, a stem or, or roots in the world. You know, you're always just constantly, you know, that there's a sense of nostalgia, there's a sense of longing in those kind of, especially in the lyrical sections, I find, um, that I would, let's say, bring out more these days because of, from my own experience as well, sometimes, you know, traveling a lot and, and seeing, let's say, the kind of states of emotion that you would go through, how the ups and downs would happen and all that stuff. That's not just, that's maybe something that would not necessarily be so apparent to a 13 year old yet, you know, um, and to play as if, again, I'm thinking mostly of the lyrical sections, but as let's say a, a kind of, you know, a commemoration of something or a kind of, you know, um, as a real expression of longing, let's say. 
you know, having a specific purpose in mind. I think that's, those are the things that you would be, that would be more apparent to you when you get older, because it's, it's something that becomes more relatable, let's say. Um, and that's the thing about, you know, that's, that's the thing about reinterpreting pieces in general, because I find that, you know, you have to almost address, like go back to why, or you can, you can imagine the purpose with which the composers compose these pieces. Often, let's say, there would be catalyst moments in their lives that, that sparked the creation of these pieces. And often, unfortunately, it would be negative emotion, let's say, that drives a lot of that, you know, or the desire for something, or again, longing, or, you know, these kind of things, I find that it's, are to get closer to the source of, or to spark the sort of the, the, the essence of each piece in a simple sense, like, um, encompassing these kind of emotions, I find that that becomes more and more apparent in, uh, over time. And that, that would also influence, let's say the way that you would try and again, alter the gravity of the notes, you know, um, create whatever kind of field of gravity below the notes, how you, how you're able to squeeze things out or how you're able to, let's say, alter again, the states, something in suspension, something in motion, something in, that that's less easygoing, something that's more easygoing. These kind of things I find um, become a little bit clearer in as you go along, just because then um, I think the more and more you do it, the more that it's, it's apparent that certain emotions can be translated in a certain way violinistically that doesn't require then much explanation. It's sort of like, okay, this is the toolbox that I have, you know, this is my understanding of phrasing. This is the understanding of, let's say, what kind of tone colors I'm able to produce. And then whatever, whatever feeling comes to mind, then it's like, you take that and you see how it translates violinistically. You know, that process is a little bit more direct, I find, as you get older. You know, you don't actually have to think about the mechanics of emotion as much, but like you actually, you're, you're more able to actually focus on Trans, like almost forgetting, transcending the instrument, and then, you know, um, so that process is different. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I experienced that too. Even in my own revisiting, revisiting of previous pieces in the past, it, it's the same thing for me. You know, not having to think about the mechanics of emotion because I already know how to how to emote, so to speak, how to so to speak, how to express myself, right? Both in the musical sense and also in a humanistic sense as well. So. There's, it's like a different stage of life, and then that different that different stage of life allows you more breadth and more depth also into how you approach a piece. We've gone through so much material and so many different topics within musicality and music and music in general. It doesn't change the fact that there are still so many misconceptions that you and I have personally experienced in terms of explaining classical music and also for other people understanding the world of classical music. What are the biggest misconceptions that you have personally experienced throughout your entire life from other people looking at classical music? Um, maybe the misconception that it's only for a small group of people, for a very specific group of people, whether it's people who understand it already or have studied it, or even just for a particular group like in society, let's say, um, which I don't think is the case. I think it's also just going back to 
to uh, the manner of the manner of how to introduce, how to just say hi, how are you, but with music, you know, kind of thing. Just reaching out in a simple way like that, not even like presenting as something that you have to do, but rather something that that is something that can add richness to your life, as it has mine, you know, and and yours, you know. Like I think that's sim- as simple as that. Just a simple, you know. A simple greeting like that, I find that that's, in a way, uh, it goes a long way because it really doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be, uh, I think that, of course, that more elitist viewpoint or like the elitist image of classical music comes from, let's say, the fact that it was, you know, the, the concert halls have been kind of big bulwarks have been kind of inaccessible and kind of, you know, there, there's something that almost seems like secret societies in a way, going into a concert hall lobby and feeling a little bit of it. Whereas I think that, of course, the concert halls are the temples for us. But I think also, like, I think if, if musicians find a way to open their, to open also their, their senses of um, communication, not to, let's say, only play concerts, in a traditional sense, but also to go out and and to 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 spread it around themselves in in humble circumstances. Even you know, I find that that's you know, uh, I think it's it has a lot of potential to to um, combating that. Yeah, yeah, that great, great words to 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 be said because I remember back in my old days when. <coughs> when I was younger, there were many people who actually bullied me for my own passion in the classical music and classical music performance. Especially since we both live in Canada. Canada is one of those countries in the developed world that doesn't really have a strong or at least a strong enough culture for classical music in general. And this is going to be a little bit of a controversial take, but I think I would argue that in the last 30 to 40 years, there's actually been a decline, at least in the mainstream for that. It's changed recently in terms of your historic win in 2010, and also with Bruce Liu's historic win at the 2021 International Chopin Competition. That was when, for the first time, and at least in my own memory, where I saw mainstream coverage of classical music. I mean... I never would I I never would have thought that Breakfast Television in Toronto would actually feature Bruce Liu's championship and I shouldn't say championship competition winning performance of one of Chopin's piano concertos on morning television for all Canadians tuning in to see like that that was just like whoa like it was whoa and then CBC the National also covered it as well so that was also like wow but. It still doesn't change the fact that there's still that kind of animosity even. Even later on, even nowadays, I still run into that once in a while. What are some of the ways that you think Canada can improve its classical music culture? And how can we teach the importance of musicality in general to people who have little to no idea about classical music? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I think um, in a way, starting with with you know, the fact that 
you know, classical music is something that, again, is not an obligation in a sense. It's like, or at least I think that it harms it. I, I think it harms classical music to think of it as, let's say, a, a obligation for for depth or for whatever. It is, of course, I think, a reflection of depth, especially um, considering the direction the world is heading, has headed in, like the, the way that even the world has changed, the pace of the world has changed over the last 30, 40 years, in which has been... Uh, unprecedented, which has been exponential. And I think, of course, there is a natural challenge of how classical music, which is something that takes time in a sense that like, okay, learning an instrument, you know, versus let's say the typing of notes into a computer, into a media program or into a, into a digital audio workstation these days. Um, it's something that does take time and therefore, and there is just less time these days. There is less of an attention span, I think also for, for, a Mahler symphony, as much as I think that if someone was, you know, if, if as much as I think if there was an ideal situation or an ideal circumstance made so that someone could actually sit there without feeling as if they need to be somewhere else and actually listen to a Mahler symphony, I'm sure that the power of that symphony will take over. But I think, of course, still there is that consideration of attention span and of time, how time these days, there's, they move so fast and there isn't, let's say, as much time to to stay in the moment, let's say, which is one of the main qualities of classical music. You know, it takes you to a different time and to a different place. Um, again, I think it's it's something to do with. I think ideally, I think from the from from the personality of the people who are bringing classical music to uh, the public, so the performers. I think it, that there is something there. Um, however, it also creates dangers, I find, you know, to make something that is not inherently demonstrative, demonstrative, you know, um, or to, let's say, uh, to feel as if the pre presentation of such an art becomes more important than the art itself in, in consideration for yourself, I mean, like, for an artist. Um, there are certain dangers there, but I think like in terms of like, um, again, going forth just with the desire to, um, to show people, not even to show people, but just to, to live your life, live an example, I guess, as a, as a classical musician, the, the dedication, the beauty, all that stuff in front of other people, you know, without, let's say the explicit, um, let's say the, the explicit uh, want or need to convert, let's say, you know, because people are going to latch onto what they latch onto, even if it's classical music, whether it's a genre, there's always going to be preferences. But I think like just to be able to have that, um, that attitude of going into the field and um, revealing what you do in a simple, in a simple manner, playing the role of a simple ambassador, you know, um, everyone's going to connect with a simple melody. You know, everyone's going to connect with a musical performance uh, in some way. You know, and I think that's that's the way to start. I feel like, of course, it could also be that uh, sometimes when it comes to people, you know, being a little feel a little, getting into classical music a bit daunting. It's because there's maybe such already such a such a grand structure there that you know that in order to feel as if you to feel the need to understand such a thing, which in the end is not is not needed. You only have to feel it again. But you know there is an understanding 
or an impression that you need to understand everything in order to, you know, um, that that really, that basically uh, causes people to give up maybe or to feel the, too much of an enormity of the task of, of, of getting into such a thing. Whereas I think, I think that if you start incrementally, if you just sort of like even from a simple melody into a simple phrase, into a simple, you know, like starting incrementally, I think is a great way to do that. Um, and in the end of the day, music is music. Good music is good music in a sense that it has an impact on people, you know. And I think that um, if there isn't any pretension attached to it, if there isn't, let's say, any other kind of like um, air of um, superiority or air of whatever, you know, I think if you're just going there just to share what you love, I think that already goes a long way. Um, and I mean, it's only it's only really like these kind of basic interactions, and then over time that we can see an impact on, let's say, even ed education systems. That the that the value of something like that is worth having around, you know, for that relationship to come to to take place. I think that what happens before that, the grassroots efforts, just like being able to go out there, and 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 social media is a great tool these days for that. You know, because it's in a way it democratizes everything. You know, it, it makes information very accessible, and you can you can reach people. Um, I think that's in a way a starting point for those that want to be ambassadors for classical music. Yeah, yeah. and another challenge that we face also is trying to explain difficult concepts in a way that is easily understandable to a non-trained or a layperson lay in the world of music. Like, for example, in the world of violin, and you know this better than I do, even just the, the types of violin and the makes of the violins are also very, very crucial to how the the music sounds, like a Strad versus a Del Jesu. You play in the Del Jesu now. And even back then, when when after you won the Manuin competition, you were also playing on a Del Jesu at the time. And even knowing that difference, to an, to an average layperson, all they would just see are just two names. And the first misconception that they would have is, oh, it's just names. It's just, you know, nostalgia for the past. It's just, you know, this uh, elitist whatever. You know, it's just no difference. But to a trained listener, especially a trained violinist, it there is a difference. So explaining that, even from like a violinist perspective, that's also a challenge because how do you how do you break off the elitist part and how do you explain the intricacies of that sound and the musicality that comes from a Strad versus a Del Jesu to a person who has no idea, who can't even tell a, a violin from a double bass? <laughs> even, and that's, I want to say I'm exaggerating, but we're in, in a day and age where some people actually literally can't tell a difference. They just say violin, big violin, you know, that kind of thing. So, but it, that, that kind of challenge is also really difficult, right? It, it, it's, it's one of so many difficult challenges that we have, but I think it, being able to explain it is perhaps like the, one of the most important skills that we have. I think in the case in the case of violin or in the case of string instruments, I think to to find a way that relates to people in a sense that you can use the voice. You know how we how we we can discern what is a low voice, what a high voice, what is what's a different timbre of voice, what's the vowel sound. You know, all these things, I think that if you use, even even in this sort of a 
specific task of describing the differences between one violin and the other. You know, it's like how how to put it so that you're almost describing different voices, the qualities of different voices. And I think that's just putting things in terms of, in perspective of what they know already or what is universal to all of us, the voice, whatever it might be. You know, I think that's, it's a way to go about it for sure. Yeah. 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 So with all this that we've been able to go through today, what are the most rewarding things that you've learned that you've witnessed rather in your career thus far? And what are the greatest lessons that you've learned in your career thus far? Hmm, I think um, to never give up. That's, I mean, it's maybe a cliche, but I think it's, it's really something that's worth keeping in mind to always constantly be evolving, to always, um, to never feel as if you've done it all. Um, to never be complacent, that is, uh, in a way, I think that's, that's a, something that I've taken away, um, that in a way to connect, to find commonalities between people, like as a way of connecting people. Um, I think music is one of those universal things like food, like whatever it might be, you know, like those universal things where people can, can immediately sort of like. Uh, you know, not only connect, but also get a measure of what you are, you know, get to learn a little bit of your background or, you know, I think it's one of those powerful forces and a way to embrace those for the sake of creating meaningful connections between people. And in a way, I mean, as a musician, I feel quite, there's a responsibility there, but I also feel like it's an, it's an honor to do that. It's an honor to play a role doing that. You know, in the end of the day, it's sort of like, it's not about personal glory because there's no such thing in the end of the day, you know, everyone's going to also like experience, uh, an ascent, you know, a, a climax or a, let's say prime state and a decline, you know, because we are, you know, we're human, but at the same time within that, it's like, how much good can you do? Right. It's like with music, there is a, there is a, a great power in, in the way that let's say you're able to, to um to provide catharsis let's say or to to potentially each performance to be a life-changing one for audience members you know like i think there's i mean i always remind myself that every time i play a piece even if i've played it 50 times in the past there's always one person in the hall that's heard it for the first time and someone's who's going to hear it for the last time you know and so like that's something that that makes me take what i do very you know not like overly seriously, but like gives a weight to what you do, you know, and to the whole purpose of making music, which is to almost be a messenger for what connects us, you know? Um, so, and that has also taught me also about like the, the importance of personal relationships in life, more than material goods, more than, uh, more than personal glory, more than, uh, creating your, your own sense of hierarchy, let's say it, the personal relationships I find, um, are those that in, in a way I think will have weight, you know, over time, like those are the things that you really do value and will remember. And funnily enough, it was music making that really hit it home for me, like hit that concept home in a sense. 
it's like just to be able to like through through playing chamber music you communicate and you make compromise and that's the way to play chamber music you know because in order to make four people even two people fit together is not always easy to make three people exponentially more difficult four people exponentially you know so like in the same way it's like in order to like chamber music teaches you about communication about being able to to um to reach a compromise in, in some way it teaches you about human nature and it, teach, it teaches you about like you know um human connection but i think so in a way i would see myself much much less from individualistic point of view now you know of course i am my own person and i take care of let's say i want to take care of myself the best that i can do because that's the source of it all for me from my perspective but then also like to really value what other people bring you know and to value those relationships because i think those those are the things that you'll remember in the end you know yeah yeah absolutely and not staying complacent and continuously pursuing and being at your best that is such an important thing to do so with that where do you see yourself in five years um perhaps in europe um that's i've always i mean just personally i've always seen myself living in europe at some point i think uh, i think i'll probably be there at, at that point for sure um but also just like doing what doing what i well doing what i'm doing now but perhaps you know going on 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 let's say a further development of paths whether in like create like assuming different additional roles in music not just a violinist but maybe a composer maybe uh, increasingly an educator maybe you know but of course doing more and more performing but i feel like um it's also hard to say because in five years these days it feels like that the, the amount the world changes every five years it feels like 50 years even you know in terms of like the technological and societal advancements that we have you know like right now like look at ai you know like it's it's just it's hard to it's hard to imagine what's going to happen five years from now but i would say like just to continue the most important thing continue like with the kind of purpose that i've you know that, that i'm that i live with not not to lose sight of that but also to to um yeah just to continue to 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 make the kind of meaningful connections and to to uh to try and spread more and more of what i do yeah yeah great five-year plan and as we start to close this episode what advice would you give to aspiring violinists and to those who want to become the next international menu and competition champion yeah i would say i would say to find your why as uh, to ask that question even if it may be a bit daunting you know to ask that as early as possible i find to have let's say to have something to play for that's a very powerful motivator um and it gets you through the difficult moments because surely there will be the violin i have to say is is a very unreasonable instrument in the sense that it twists your body and it requires a lot of strenuous activity and maybe 
unfortunately, there's going to be injuries. There's going to be, you're going to get hurt, you know, um, and you're going to get discouraged, you know, because it is, it is a very steep learning curve. Even just to learn how to draw the, draw the bow on the string. I think that's, that's immediately something that's, it's very different from, let's say, just being able to press a key on a piano and then immediately making a relatively decent sound, you know, kind of thing. Right. Um, but I would say to take it slow, you know, to trust in the process. I think what you see in whatever perhaps inspi inspires you to, to, to pursue the same path, let's say like, you know, the images of people, soloists on stage with the flowers and the applause and all that, that's only the very, very tip of the iceberg in a way. Those are like, in a way, very uncommon moments in one's life of music. I think the majority of it is the process. And to think as if, let's say the process is something that you need to go through in order to get to, I think that's the wrong mentality. In fact, I think to think of the process itself as inherently valuable um, and to, to enjoy the process, therefore, to find a way to, to tell yourself that this is important in itself, regardless of who's watching, because at the end of the day, who cares about that, right? You know, this is all about for yourself, like to find yourself. And so I would say to enjoy the process, to enjoy the little details in the same way that you would try and enjoy the little details in everyday life. So I would say, um, especially with the violin, to never lose track of that because there's going to be ups and downs, but at the same time, there's upside downs in life, ups and downs in life, but there is a constant, you know, there is a constant uh, that takes you through all of that. I think that, that, that allows you to transcend that, which is in this case, the process itself, you know, um, so I would say, yeah, just enjoy the process enjoy the little details and try and bring, try and work on your technique for the sake of, um, for the sake of bringing joy to those around you instead of, let's say, <laughs> being the best at something, you know? <laughs> That's because a good often, one. Often I find that it actually takes you farther. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, the, the old saying always goes, it's not always about the destination, it's about the journey. And it's also about the friends we made along the way on the journey as well. So that's a great way to end this on. And wow, we've gone through a lot of content today, a lot of many different ideas, deep dive into your career, deep dive into musicality. It's been a great, great time talking with you, catching up with you, Kirsten. Um, it's been, again, it's been a long time since we last spoke, since uh, about four years ago, almost four and a half years ago. So really, really great to catch up with you. Thank you so very much for coming on to the podcast. And thank you for sharing the living legend of Kirsten Young. Thanks, Amos. No, I mean, this was a, it was a long conversation, but it was very enjoyable and very meaningful. So, I mean, thank you for bringing me on. And, um, and it's great that you're doing this kind of work, you know, with your podcast. And um, I think it's, it's something that, that adds a lot of, um, that brings a lot, you know, and then adds a lot to whoever's listening. So I think... Uh, you know, I'll uh, continue on with that. 
Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for the kind words. And thank you to our audience who has made it this far all the way to the end of the interview. And thank you so much for tuning in to the very living legend of Kirsten Young. You can follow him on social media on Instagram at Kirsten Young. Once again, at Kirsten Young. And you can also subscribe to his YouTube channel, also named Kirsten Young. Definitely support him in his journey and we'll see what ha- what will happen, what amazing journeys and adventures he will go on for the next many years. Once again, you have listened or tuned into the legend of Kirsten Young. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and also follow us on our own social media and visit our website as well. And as once you do that, you won't be missing any content that comes from us you'll be always tuned in to a new update from us once again thank you so much for tuning in to this episode and be sure to stay tuned for more signing off for now this is amos vang stay safe stay healthy and stay legendary